Uh, in other news, uh, some jackass named Casey just started recording two and a half minutes ago. So I'm going to leave you a nice edit. So in case oh you want to cut all that, I'm going to kill you. I know. I'm gonna, uh, I know. No, it's y- my your fault. punishment is I'm going to have to use the low quality Zoom version for your for your opening banter. That is also completely acceptable. No joke. But do you want me to leave you like a nice? Let's start with follow up right do now. Do you need to have? Do you need to have a checklist, Casey? I do. I need. I suggested call Merlin. that Merlin have a checklist. And maybe you need a checklist, too. It's been a long time. And the problem is, I, I was all out of, out of sorts today, and I'm the one who caused us to come to come and do this today. And then I felt like I was late to get to our Zoom call. It's entirely my fault. Like, I'm not trying to blame anyone but me. But I was all out of sorts. I didn't hit record. And I'm used to call recorder having my back on this one. And because we switched to Zoom and because, you know, we were all eventually going to be on M1 Max, except maybe John, it wasn't there to save me. It's all my fault, but I feel dumb. Anyway, uh, do you so you don't want a good edit? You're just going to use the crap copy. That's totally fine. It's entirely my fault. I do not blame you at all. But I'll leave you a nice, you know, intro if you want it. You'll find out. Okay. See, the problem is <laughs> if I use the crap copy, it punishes you, but it also punishes me because people will first think that I just suck at audio quality. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could also leave all this in if you would like. <laughs> oh, people, people don't even notice. It'll be short enough. It'll sound like oh, it sounded weird in the beginning, but then it sounded normal. It'll be fine. Uh, I'm going to do this for me, and you're going to ignore it, and that's fine, but it will make me feel slightly better about my ineptitude. So I need you two to shut the hell up for like 10 seconds. Are you re-recording an intro? You're never going to be able to do it naturally. It's always going to sound awkward. No, no, just, just let me give it a shot. We are sponsored this week by Squarespace. God damn it. Uh, all right. Recording. Hey, listeners. Uh, would you two shut up for two <laughs> seconds? That's an incomparable joke for you there, Casey. Uh, hey, listeners. It's your pal, Casey. Uh, some dummy, like me, forgot to hit record right away when I started recording tonight. So if I sound like garbage, it's not Marco's fault, it's not John's fault, it's not your phone's fault, it's my fault. But don't worry, I hit record after a few minutes, and then I'll sound just like I normally do. <laughs> I'm not going to use this. <laughs> I'm, I would never put that in. I would, I've already done the edit in my head. I got it covered. Don't worry. I know exactly <laughs> what I'm going to do. There's no way I'm going to use something like that ever. You've heard of headcanon? Marco's got head edit. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, listeners. Like this. Why? Why would I ever do that? No, I, hey, if I because I just wanted to give you the option. It makes me feel better to know you have the option. I know you're not going to use it. It's not for you. It's for me. Hey, listeners. Casey here. I'd like to apologize for my ineptitude starting my recording tonight. You should apologize for his uh, counterfactual statements about cryptocurrency. That's what you should be apologizing for. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. I just I hate to tell you, Casey, but you really just don't have any of your facts right on cryptocurrency. Things you said were based not in fact, but ignorance. Here are five paragraphs describing how wrong you are. We're lucky if they have paragraph breaks. Oh, God. You want to restart the whole friggin' show? Because no. we can do nope. that, too. Nope. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We, we plow bravely forward. Yep. This is all going in. Uh, I wanted to bring up a, just a very quick follow-up item uh, from last week's Ask ATP. Uh, somebody had asked about uh, what what camera to take to Disney World, and, and I actually really enjoyed that discussion. I thought it was very interesting. But um, somebody, Ryan D., wrote in to remind me of Disney PhotoPass. And if you're not a Disney World person, this probably means nothing to you. I'll try to be very brief. Uh, Disney PhotoPass is a thing that you can add on, of course, for money, where as you are around the parks, you can choose to have your picture taken and, by, you know, Disney photographers that have, you know, DSLRs. And I don't recall exactly what equipment they have, but I know they're DSLRs. 
And as you're around the park, you can say, hey, would you mind taking a picture of us, please? And they'll scan your ticket or your magic band or what have you. And then that evening, that that thing will, that picture will be in your like online account. So you can download a full res copy and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think it was like a, a couple hundred bucks when we went uh, in late 2019 for Declan's Fifth, which on the surface is a lot of money to have, you know, these Disney photographers take your picture. But I absolutely think it's worth every ounce of the money you spend because not only can you do this, you know, and get everyone in the pictures as opposed to all of our family pictures where it's everyone but me because I'm taking the picture, but also as you get on and off rides, you can just bloop your ticket and it will automatically, you know, send that ride photo that in the in the before times, before before times, it used to cost like 20 bucks for each of these. It'll sync that ride photo with your account and then you can just download it on your own, which is super great. In some cases in some rides, by some magic I'm not entirely clear on, it'll actually automatically figure out which vehicle you're on and which photo you're in and sync that with your account. You don't have to do any manual blooping of any sort. So that's Disney Photo Pass. Uh, if you are a Disney World person or Disneyland, I mean, I'm sorry if all you have is Disneyland, but that's neither here nor there. If you're a Disney World person, uh, please check that out. It's it's very, very good. Yeah, I think we got that when we went. Um, and if you if you were like the person last week who was asking what kind of camera should they bring and whether they should use like a rental company to get one, chances are good that you probably also want to take your own photos because the Disney, the PhotoPass ones are what you expect. It's you in front of landmarks, taking in a group picture, maybe doing a fun pose, right? But if you're taking your own camera and wanting to get more candid things or casual things or photos of other aspects, traveling to and from the park, your hotel room, you know, kids waiting in line or all sorts of stuff like that. You want to take your own pictures too. So like, like everything at Disney, it's, it's an add on and it's a good add on and you should get it in addition to the other thing. And also the other thing and also the other thing. So yeah, <laughs> Disney, Disney is expensive, but, uh, but it photo pass does have value. Like I said, Casey, like I think the only pictures we have with me in them are the photo pass pictures. Exactly. I'm, taking all, I'm taking all the pictures and yep. some of them, are, some of them are good. Um, and then one more note, Casey keeps saying DSLR, I'm assuming they don't have little mirrors flapping up and down in their cameras anymore, <laughs> but this is just the, what you're trying to say with that is an interchangeable lens digital camera. Is that what Sorry, you're trying to say? Yes. Yes. A big fancy camera TM moving right along. Uh, Dan Chandler had some interesting feedback with regard to cybersecurity and bug bounties and things of that nature. I'm a cybersecurity professional, says Dan Chandler, and have helped run bug bounties for some large organizations. There are a few reasons why an organization should not just pay out for any bug that's reported. First of all, many vulnerabilities reported to bug bounty programs are also sold to criminals. If I'm willing to sell to criminals, then why not get paid twice? Secondly, if you host a bug bounty program that is too quote-unquote generous, then you get more and more people hunting for defects in your product. You have to assume that some percentage of these people are going to sell their exploit to a criminal as well as submit it to the bug bounty program. Since you cannot fix every vulnerability instantly, you want to balance the desire to encourage someone who finds a vulnerability to come forward with the risk to the public of paying random people to hunt for vulnerabilities in your product or service. And then finally, it's actually pretty uncommon for a bug bounty program to uncover major, a major vulnerability the company did not already know about. It happens, but it's rare. The main purpose of the large bug bounty payouts is essentially to provide hush money to someone who does, fi who does find a major vulnerability before it is patched. Yeah, I think that that's true in general, but for Apple and the iPhone specifically, there's probably not much more you could do to encourage people to find exploits. It's already, a, people are already highly motivated to do that. So, I mean, it is definitely a balance, but in general, this definitely makes sense. Um, the getting paid twice thing, I feel like that's just the cost of doing business. I mean, like, yeah, that's going to happen. You don't have control over it, but 
what you uh, all you can do is catch uh, like uh, encourage all all the honest people to come and yeah the dishonest people are also going to come it's just cost of doing business which is a shame uh the hush money thing is interesting because like you see it in the in from my you know read on these people's blog posts and stuff the people who are trying to do the right thing and keep quiet for such a long time and what i feel like is the the motivation of these people to eventually break their silence and just essentially refuse the money is not so much that like oh you know you can pay me to, to keep quiet but if you don't i'm going to out you is there is cachet and reputation you know boost to finding an important vulnerability you can talk about it at a security conference right like you it helps your profile in the security business to find big vulnerabilities and the longer you have to keep quiet about them the lo- you know the, the more you can't give talks about them or you know you know like, it's like you don't get reputational credit for it right and these are the, the things i'm reading are people who essentially end up turning down the money from apple now maybe they already sold it to criminals but i can't tell that from their blog post but it seems to me that they really just want to tell the world that they found this because they're proud of it uh but apple says oh you can't until we fix it and you know they talk they send an email once every six months to say no it's not fixed yet so that can be frustrating but anyway these are all important points in general with bug bounty programs that especially if you have a thing that people previously weren't breaking into but suddenly you're giving out millions of dollars yeah it's going to attract a bunch of new people to try to find holes in your thing and your thing does have holes in it because they all do because they're made by people uh, I wanted to briefly talk about cryptocurrency because I really like feedback email. Apparently, um, we <laughs> got a ton. Why? We got a ton of feedback. We got a ton of feedback about crypto, um, mostly from libertarians, tech bros, and finance bros. Yes, <laughs> and we got. I, to my recollection, maybe I missed it, but to my recollection, we got literally zero email about CSAM, or maybe a couple of items. And boy, did we get a bunch on crypto. So we can tell what ATP <laughs> listeners care about, or perhaps what they disagree with. Uh, but I did want to point out the only. I'm trying to temper myself here. Uh, <laughs> the most compelling argument that I personally have heard in favor of cryptocurrency, which I have not had a lot of time to research, but I did very, very briefly, is that apparently in countries like Nigeria, as an example, uh, Bitcoin may actually be kind of the savior it is claimed to be. My, my limited understanding, please fact check this if you're interested, because I'm probably lying to you accidentally. Uh, my limited understanding is in some of these countries like Nigeria, the, the, the what is it, fiat currency? What's the like the derogatory term? They I use believe for that's it. Yeah, fiat real currency. Money. Yeah. Um, the fiat currency is like falling apart in a disaster. And so a lot of like regular schmoes in Nigeria, if I'm, if what I've read is to be believed, are turning to Bitcoin to kind of take banking or, or, you know, take money into their own hands. And if that really is the case, then, okay, I can get behind that. That that seems somewhat legitimate. Um, I still think there are better ways to go about this, perhaps. But, uh, you know, if it costs the heat death of the universe in order to get us there, then, you know, YOLO. Uh, but I did want to point out that that was one of the few semi-compelling arguments I've heard, even though we have heard a lot of arguments about Bitcoin over the last week. Not even, like six days, five, four to five days uh, since we've released. Would you call them arguments? Um, a lot of, a lot of, well, actually, we've been sent a lot of words about Bitcoin over the last few days, <laughs> a lot, like the average length of the emails is, is quite, quite high. I don't want to make uh, Casey disappointed, but I think this, the, the one thing you picked out is maybe, uh, a redeeming value of Bitcoin, I feel like is exactly in keeping with uh, our collective take on it on the last episode. Uh, because the situation you just described is 
you have people uh, in a country with a failing monetary system, and they're you know they can't they can't trust their government to run the monetary system, or the monetary system is badly broken by corruption or massive inflation or all sorts of other problems. Like they don't have a good functioning monetary system. So Bitcoin to the rescue, right? That's exactly the scenario we we're describing, uh, where Bitcoin is useful. If you have a bunch of people who can't trust each other, and there's no middle party to be the trusted you know, finance institution, like say, if you're a criminal or you're trying to collect ransomware or you're living in a failed state and the monetary system of your entire country is falling apart. Yeah, Bitcoin is there for you. That's the exact use case. Now, in this case, you're not a criminal or you're not doing anything wrong. It's not your fault you live in this country. And so it's good that there's something. And that's why the underlying technical, you know, structure of having a way for, for uh, you know, people who don't trust each other to nevertheless be able to securely transact without anyone in the middle who they all have to trust. That's why this is interesting. But if the only time it becomes relevant or useful is if, like, it's your last resort, that's not an endorsement of, of Bitcoin or <laughs> cryptocurrency. That's a condemnation of the monetary system of the country that you live in, right? Um, if Bitcoin was super awesome for doing things, for being a currency, we would all be using it in this country because why wouldn't we? But instead we use dollars because they're better for that. Um, yeah. And, and like as a, as a sort of, you know, if, if you have to use Bitcoin specifically as your, for your monetary transactions, because you have no choice, you, your other monetary choices must be really bad because I would never want to use as my money a thing whose value can be cut in half over the course of a couple of months. It's extremely volatile. It's not, you know, you don't want that in a currency. You don't want it to be that volatile. Maybe if you're using it as an investment vehicle and you're speculating, volatility can be fun and you can make lots of money or lose lots of money, depending on how it goes. But really, <laughs> you just, like if you look at the all-time graph of, of Bitcoin value, it is extremely spiky. And depending on where you are in the timeline, you can lose half of your money in, in, you know, less than a quarter of a year. If you're on the other side of the spikes, you can, or you could quintuple your money in less than half a year, which is the part that the Bitcoin fans all look at. So um, if you find yourself in a situation where Bitcoin is your best choice for, uh, as a currency, that's a bummer. But I don't think it is an endorsement of Bitcoin as a, uh, as a replacement for, uh, you know, quote unquote, normal currency. Fiat. Yeah, and there's also I think there's also the the technical barrier is also not to be underestimated. I mean, you have this this currency that people are are putting real money into and collecting real money from that has a pretty massive technical requirement of like knowledge that you need to have and care that you need to take in order to have this very responsibly if such a thing can be considered responsible at, on any level like imagine if if people's entire retirement savings were dependent on their password hygiene you know, this would be a bad scene this would like that would be really bad uh, and that's uh, because bitcoin is is so technical and because it works a lot more like cash under your mattress, uh, but that it's cash under your mattress that the entire world can access, and if you make one mistake, the entire world can exploit it. Um, that's that's not a good place for the general audience of non-technical users to be relying on a lot of their money to be to be stored in. Um, and so, any scenario that you say, "Oh, Bitcoin's great for this," like, well, it's also in addition to all the downsides we talked about last week, you know, with the environmental costs and, and everything, and the you know the the various like illicit trades and ransomware and everything that it seems to have, have fueled. Um, there's also just this massive technical risk factor here that 
people get scammed out of their bitcoins or hacked out of their bitcoins all the time and then you have then you involve all these like weird shady wallet companies and exchanges that like that in- introduces its own, its own whole levels of technical risk and opportunities for sleaziness or scams like it, it's just it's like this giant seedy underbelly of finance that the proponents of it seem to be very you know hell bent on getting regular people to put their money into it see also the stock market um whereas like really if you don't have a baseline level of knowledge you will lose or you'll be at risk to lose everything um through no fault of your own and that's i think that can't be overlooked yeah a lot of companies build on top of the infrastructure of bitcoin or whatever like you end up going through one of these companies to to deal with stuff just because you don't like there is a technical barrier to being able to sort of figure out how to do it and having the capacity to do it you know, right on the network itself. So there's tons of companies that will keep a wallet for you and uh, the mining pools and all sorts of other things where even though Bitcoin is supposed to be decentralized and no central authority or whatever, it doesn't mean that there aren't intermediaries. I I imagine most, you know, sort of casual individuals who are doing things with any kind of cryptocurrency are using some kind of intermediary that makes it more convenient for them. Some of them don't actually require you to give up any particular security, uh, in which case you're back to the Marco scenario where, well, it's on you to make sure you're careful with this stuff. Um, But other ones do sort of take over some of the tasks of security for you in exchange for transaction fees or whatever, you know, like there are businesses built on top of this. And some people even promote that this is the model that Bitcoin, even though it has a very crappy transaction rate due to proof of work stuff, uh, you can build a second layer on top of that. And that's your currency system and so on and so forth. But, you know, it's kind of a shame that Bitcoin is the one with all of the PR and everything because in many ways it's kind of the most the most primitive and the sort of the 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 least user friendly let's say um and, but that's that I, like there are lots of other cryptocurrencies and lots of these other you know crypto you, it's, anyone can make a cryptocurrency and they all have different feature sets and some of them are clones or other ones and there's lots of monetary scams around them but it's a big world of stuff like there are lots of interesting ideas floating around there from like Ethereum's like contracts on the blockchain and everything to all sorts of, you know, the proof of work with proof of stake for stuff and all the, all the various uh, parameters within those models and how they're distributed. And it's sort of like a bunch of experiments all being run at once. Which one of these works? Which is easiest to scam? Which makes the most money for investors? Which has the highest chance of you losing all your money because you forgot your password or got hacked and got your, you know, private key stolen? Like, that's all happening out there. And I think some, you know, the technology, the underlying technology, you can't put this genie back in the bottle. Like this is a technology that has a use, even if it ends up mostly being used to like stop cheaters in online games or something in the future, like decades from now, something is going to come of this. But right now it is a fairly dangerous place for individuals to be. So we, you know, when we come down hard on crypto, it's not like we're saying, oh, nothing will ever come of this. This technology is bad and should be you know erased no the technology the, you know the, the the knowledge the math the you know the experimentation that's all great but if you're an individual listening to a tech podcast and you're like should i put all my money into cryptocurrency should i put any money into cryptocurrency you kind of have to know what you're getting into it's super risky very dangerous you have to know a lot about what you're doing and there are a lot of people out there who are going to encourage you with all their might to put as much as possible into whatever their pet cryptocurrency is because they stand to gain from it so 
kind of like the stock market, like Marco said. There are people who will encourage you, oh, become a day trader, get on E-Trade, do individual investing, and that's just a losing bet. Not because the stock market is inherently a bad thing that we should eliminate, although maybe there's a different argument for that elsewhere, but, <laughs> but, because, but because as an individual, if you are going to try to be an individual investor and speculate on what's going to go up and what's going to go down, you're probably going to lose, so maybe don't do that. Like That's why you see the, the you know sort of boring financial advice of even though it's fun to be a day trader and maybe you can do it as a hobby, don't bet your life savings on it, right? Um, cryptocurrency is very similar. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm always very wary of people really pushing that everyone should be getting into Bitcoin coming from somebody who has a big stake in Bitcoin or it's their hobby or, you know, it's not always nefarious. Sometimes they're just enthusiastic. Like they're super into it, right? Some people are super into something. They really want you to get into it and they will encourage you. It's it's not like they're trying to scam you and they're not even may not even be doing it to think, well, if more people get into Bitcoin, the value will go up and my money will go up. They're just really enthusiastic about it. But it still doesn't mean like people enthusiastic about day trading, too. It still doesn't mean that it's right for you. So in general, I would say cryptocurrency, like you'll know it when it becomes a thing that is reasonable and safe for people to do. But right now we are still definitely in the lots of experiments going on phase. NFTs out there, you got Ethereum, you got Bitcoin we don't know how this is going to all work out and lots of signs point to it not working out really well at all. So the safe bet is to just <laughs> stay away. If you want to throw a couple bucks in and play with it and you can deal with the potential moral implications of a, a tiny increase in CO2 output from your tiny individual contribution, go for it. But don't buy the hype that uh, it is uh, any one of these things is necessarily the future of currency because that is, to say the least, a huge open question. Uh, CSAM stuff. Uh, this is child uh, safety stuff. We talked about quite a bit last week, which I, I actually really enjoyed the conversation. We got a lot of uh, very positive feedback about it, which I, I really genuinely appreciate. That was very kind of all of you. Uh, we do have some feedback about it. There, excuse me, follow up about it though. Uh, Facebook found twenty million photos, not twenty million people. That is quite a big difference. I'm not sure which one of us said that incorrectly, but uh, it is worth noting. Yeah, we, we said it right a whole bunch of times, but I think I eventually said it wrong once. So just to make that clear, in case you're you're afraid that there are 20 million child predators out there now. <laughs> now but if you want to get depressed, you can start trying to do the math and figure out, well, so how many pictures per person is it and how many people is it? I don't know that yeah, math. All I know is gross. it was 20 million photos. And that was in one year. Um, so yeah. maybe that doesn't make you feel as good. But anyway. Yikes. Uh, moving right along. John, you found a very in, entrancing PDF that you'd like to share with the class? Yeah. Um, I, I got to reference this in the next item, but you know, these are all on Apple's apple.com slash child hyphen safety. This one was called, uh, what is it? Uh, security threat model review, Apple's child safety features. I think it was interesting because uh, if you read it, the, each, each thing that is part of the system that we described last week is broken into sections where it says, what are the goals of this feature? What are the design principles? And what are the security and privacy uh, requirements? And if you read this document in isolation, it makes a lot of sense. Like, it's like, okay, here's here's this feature. Here's the principles we had. Like, what the principles are, you know, what? how is it vulnerable? Should Apple be able to do this or not be able to do it? Should information never leave the user's device or stay on the device? Like, this, this, you know, the security and uh, privacy requirements. Like, it's saying, when implementing this feature, here are the things we want to be true about it. And if you list it, you'll be, you'll be nodding your head and going, yeah. That's a good. That's a good goal. Of this feature. I like those design principles. I like the security and, and privacy requirements. It may and it, and it explains why is the system made the way it is. And it also explains why, in this interview with uh, Craig Federighi uh, from Joanna Stern of the Wall Street Journal, that Federighi really hammers on the superior privacy 
of Apple's approach. It, it, like It's almost like he's reading from this document of saying, we did it this way because this provides more privacy. And he doesn't elaborate on it. This document elaborates on it. When he says more privacy, this is what he means. The things in this document are saying, it has these qualities. It adheres to these principles. The goals of this features were X, Y, and Z, and that's why we did it this way to achieve these goals. So I'll, I'm going to get back to that in a second, but I'll let like Casey summarize the interview. Right. So this is you know the interview with Craig Federighi and Joanna Stern, which uh, I just wanted to say I think Joanna's excellent. She she did such a great job at this. Um, there you know there are some quibbles that I think we have, but by and large I thought it was really really well done. And I liked the way that she would like pause Federighi and they would do you know their little motion graphics or illustrations whatever they are in order to explain stuff. Um, there were a couple of interesting points about this though. I I love Federighi. I really do. I think he strikes me as a very nice and very smart guy. I, I didn't love this interview with him though. Uh, it seemed, I, I got the vibe that he wasn't telling me the whole story, even though uh, allegedly he was trying to tell the whole story. Like, and granted it's a short interview, granted it's for a you know more basic audience, but I don't know. Some of the things he said just didn't rub me right. Um, one of the, uh, one of the things he did say though, is that the database of hashes, I guess, um, are shipped on device, which we'd known uh, last week. And he specifically cited that it's the same database in China as it is in America, which I thought it was interesting that he kind of gave a nod in the direction of China is something that we're all, you know, not fearful of, but I can't think of a better way of phrasing it. And it makes sense. I mean, that is what we're all thinking about, but I was surprised that he acknowledged it. And then the other thing that, that struck me a little weird was he said there are multiple levels of auditability in this system. Like there are multiple places where, where regular people can audit it. And he implied, for example, that regular people could audit the contents of the database that is shipped as part of iOS. And I just, where, where is this? Cause I don't see this and maybe it's, maybe it's to be announced, like how a regular person or perhaps a security researcher could go yeah, in and look at Did he say regular people? Cause my no, he is didn't. Talking, he didn't. He means people outside Apple. <laughs> yes, exactly. But even still, like even like a, a me or a you or a Marco or, or like a Guy Rambo, like where where is this stuff that we can go look at? Because Apple generally doesn't take too kindly to us, you know, opening up iOS releases and trying to go spelunking within them. So uh, perhaps I'm I'm being chicken little and perhaps there'll be ex explicit instructions about it, even for regular people, for all I know. But sitting here today, it seemed a little dubious to me. Well, I mean, they're going to ship the bits to you, so, you know, and if it's if it's in the OS, people will be able to find it and compare it and know when it changes and see that it is the same across regions and all the other stuff, right? And there's a lot more technical detail that. I felt like in this interview, he was trying to, he, he couldn't possibly go into the stuff that these tech documents go into, not even the stuff from the threat model document that I put in the links, but he was, everything he was saying in them, you could sort of reference back to that. But here's, there was one question that Joanna didn't ask. Uh, that I think uh, would have been illuminating and really is the thing that I've been thinking about since our discussion last week that it's the, kind of the it's not a problem for Apple now but I feel like it makes more everything they say and people's discomfort with it makes more sense when you uh, look in on this one point and this question now, we talked about it last week too but I'm going to dive into it again here um, Joanna didn't ask about end-to-end -end encryption on iCloud backups and iCloud photo library, right? Doesn't currently exist, right? Right now, when you do an iCloud backup, Apple has the key to it. It's encrypted at rest, but Apple has the key so they can look at it. Same thing with your iCloud photo library. If Apple wanted, they can look at all your pictures because they're on Apple servers. And yes, they're all encrypted, but Apple has the key, right? That's my understanding. And I've checked that in a couple different places and that's, that's the case, right? 
everything in this threat model document is true within the scope of the features they added. Like here was our design requirements. We didn't want Apple to be able to see any of your pictures until you've crossed the threshold. And, you know, we didn't want to know if you were near the threshold, you know, with all like, and by the way, something I got wrong on the thing. They sent a security voucher for every single picture. So even, you know, the good ones and the bad ones. So Apple has no idea. Like every single picture gets a security voucher that they scan. Apple has no idea whether it, whether of all the security vouchers they got are a few of them indicating a bad pictures past the threshold or whatever, right? So these are the design principles. Like Apple's like, we didn't want to know this. We wanted to make it secure. So we can't tell this mathematically. We can't do this. And it's like, okay, the feature you described fulfills these requirements. But there's a huge problem. None of that matters because you don't need to mess with this at all, Apple, because you have access to all our pictures. <laughs> like you don't have to worry. This CSAM feature doesn't change the fact that you already have access to all our pictures. Like it, it every one of the the sort of design goals and security and privacy requirements in these CSAM features is pointless because as I was trying to make the point last week, no one would ever try to use this system to get at the pictures because there's already complete access to every single person's picture on the server side today. That's the way it is, right? So when reading this document and them saying this is better privacy, the only way it makes sense to me is that eventually if Apple does end-to-end encryption of iCloud backups or even just photos things or whatever, suddenly this all makes sense because suddenly these security requirements and design principles are relevant right? It's, it's, it's like saying, boy, this door has a million locks on it and even Apple can't open it, but there's no wall. And so you can just walk past the door, but the door is super secure. The door is, it really preserves your privacy, but it's like, but, but there's no wall. It's like, but, but we won't, we'll only try to go. I, it doesn't make any sense. Right. And so what, what I get out of this whole week's worth of press and everything is that Apple seems like Apple does not want to be able to see your photos, but they currently can Every part of the CSAM system and the scanning thing or whatever is made so that Apple's like, look, we don't want to see your photos. We don't want to be able to see your photos. Like, not until this threshold, like, that's why they built this complicated system of, like, you know, we have the system that's going to try to see if it's a match against this database, but it's not exact, so we have to do a threshold, and when it hits, only then do we ever want to even be able to see a low-resolution thumbnail to try to confirm if it's one of the, the pictures from the NCMEC database. But otherwise, we don't want to be able to see your photos at all, but we totally can. We can see all of them, right? <laughs> and so, and, and they haven't said anything about this. Like, I mean, if you asked them, if you had asked them, hey, Apple, are you ever going to do end-to-end encryption on iCloud Photo Library and iCloud Backups? They're not going to tell you because they don't talk about f- future products. But this entire feature only makes sense in a world where Apple plans to do that. Here's the second problem. Everything I said last week about don't worry about this feature because it doesn't make security any worse because Apple already has access to all of your photos. If that ever changes and Apple suddenly doesn't have access to all your photos, this CSAM feature does become the most attractive vector for getting for you know governments or anyone else to force Apple to get its stuff, right? What I was trying to say last week, which a lot of people weren't understanding, is like no one would go through the CSAM feature to do this. There's way easier ways, right? Why would you make your life more difficult? The system is way more secure than the hey Apple, just you know, drip to everything and let us scan it, or like hacking Apple to do that, or whatever, right? But if that changes this, then what everyone's saying about oh, you built the feature, now it's easy to get it, that suddenly becomes true because the previous lack of a wall now there's a brick wall there and the door suddenly becomes the most viable vector because at least it opens and closes and you just have to pick the locks or whatever right 
so it's kind of a weird situation. Like, and I haven't seen this really put in these terms in, in any of the discussion. It's like some of these features are nonsensical now, but if you make them make sense by implementing end-to-end -end encryption, all of the sort of scare tactics about the slippery slope things become worse because then this does become <laughs> the most valid way to try to you know, have a government force Apple to do things. And as I was trying to emphasize last week, governments can force you to do things because that's the way government works. They have all the guns and they control the laws in the countries in which they operate. And if you don't like that, you can't, you know, there's, again, there's no amount of security that can fix that. Like, you know, governments can outlaw end-to-end -end security and then like, you know, it'll become illegal for you to do that and they can make it criminal and take you to court and blah, 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 you know. You really need to deal with your government. That is your core problem here. But since we don't know, okay, does Apple plan to implement end-to-end -end security? It's hard to know how to feel about these features. If the Apple has said, and by the way, we're going to do end-to-end -end security, I would, if they announced that at the same time of this, I would be much more on the side of, ooh, the CSAM feature, now that they've built it, it makes it more likely that, that, that you know, bad things will happen. But they didn't announce that. So we have no idea if they're ever going to do end-to-end -end encryption. So it's really weird. Like... And that's why I think this threat model document is great. If you read it and don't know about all the other aspects of Apple's security on their servers, like the fact that the iCloud backups are not end-to-end -end encrypted and, and Apple already has access to your photos, then this document in isolation looks airtight. But if you do know that context, this document starts to seem really weird and nonsensical. Um, and by the way, if I'm wrong about the photos thing, again, I tried to confirm that with as many people as I could think to ask this question to, and everyone said, yes, this is the truth. But if that's not the case, someone from Apple, please tell me. Can Apple currently look at all the iCloud, uh, you know, photos in someone's life? In theory, not that they do. I'm, I'm sure they don't. But in theory, could they look at everyone's uh, photos in their iCloud photo library? As far as I've been able to tell, the answer to that is yes. We know it's true for iCloud backups because they've done that and, you know, law enforcement and stuff has made them do that. And in the U.S. or whatever. So. Well, and I think that's a critical differentiator. You know, a lot of people here are assuming, you know, like like you are, you know, proposing, like many people have proposed, like, well, this seems like an obvious precursor to Apple offering end-to-end -end iCloud encryption. Um, and, and that's actually, we, that's probably a separate discussion of, like, whether that's even a good idea um, and certainly whether, whether that should be the default or whether it should be an opt-in thing because there are, you know, serious repercussions if, for example, you forget your password. And you you lose access to all your devices, and like that's kind of like that's that's a big support issue just from the reality of customer support and everything that Apple have to deal with. But yeah, we we talked about this on past episodes of ATP. Of the why the reason Apple is resisting doing that is not so much because it's a principled stand against uh, you know or like they want to be able to access your things. It's a customer support issue, which I kind of believe. But as time marches on, I think we, as we said the last time we discussed, as time marches on, it becomes less and less tenable to say okay, customer support. But and I think some support for the idea idea that Apple's coming around on this is the new features they added about like delegating to like a family member to unlock your stuff, whatever that feature is Right, called. yeah, the legacy planning stuff. Right. That is a thing that someone would do if they were eventually planning to really bite the bullet and say, I know it's going to be a pain in the ass for customer support, but like I would imagine they would really start pushing hard on when everybody sets up your phone. Like, tell us, please tell us. Are you sure you don't want to tell us somebody like your your brother or sister or parent or a friend who you want to trust because you're gonna need this later when you forget your passwords, right? If they hammer that feature really hard, then maybe they can mitigate against the eventual end-to-end -end encryption. Yeah, but I, I think ultimately, I would bet that this feature's existence, while this would I think make end-to-end -end encryption easier for you know the law and governments to swallow if it does eventually become either an option or the default. Um, I I don't know that this necessarily suggests that that's coming because I like you're right that 
I'm pretty sure Apple does have the keys to all of your iCloud data with the exception of iCloud Keychain, which is end-to-end encrypted. Um, but as far as I, as far as I can guess, it seems like maybe they wouldn't want the whatever the process is that they use internally to make sure that you know random employees aren't just snooping on everyone's iCloud data. Like I'm sure they probably have some kind of process for actually decrypting customer data and handing it over to law enforcement. And they might only want to invoke that when served with the warrant, for instance. Whereas the CSAM scanning feature, this is the difference between like, you know, law enforcement versus surveillance. This feature is constantly scanning your stuff going up to iCloud, even if no warrant has been issued against you. And so maybe they don't want that same, you know, like whatever the warrant reply system is where, okay, we're served with this warrant. We are forced, we, we legally must comply with it. So we are forced to hand over any data we have about this customer. So then they have a process to deal with that, right? But what if, if they use that process to look into your photos and then hand it off to the police, I don't, maybe they could get sued for, I, I don't know, like, like maybe like suppose, suppose they refer somebody to the, to law enforcement and it's and it ends up it's it's actually like a false positive. It's actually you know the stuff they have is actually legal, and they get law enforcement on their backs, and it ruins their life. And then they sue Apple. Like maybe Apple just wants to keep their hands as clean as possible, and like okay, well the keys that we have to look at all your iCloud data, we're only going to use those keys as we are legally required to when served with a warrant or subpoena or whatever. Whereas you know this automated system that's proactively surveilling all of our you know data for this stuff. Maybe that goes through a much more strict and like narrow view process to avoid their own liability. Uh, I think it's kind of the opposite. Where if they're served a warrant, that the, the information they get from that will be admissible in court, whereas the, it's questionable whether the surveillance stuff that they catch, you know, just by scanning everybody is. But in terms of the government making them do things, like the, even just the plain old U.S. government can n- not just make Apple say, "Oh, we'll scan this person's thing." They can, because terrorism, I'm sure, make Apple, under the right conditions, <laughs> have a secret warrant that requires Apple to scan everybody's picture all the time, 24 hours a day, in perpetuity, for whatever the government wants them to, because terrorism, and because of some terrible Patriot Act law and a secret judge that offers a secret thing. And by the way, Apple can't talk about it. Maybe they're already doing this, right? Setting aside the NSA hacking them and being already being inside their data centers or, you know, having cracked all the encryption and gotten the secret keys out for everyone's, like... There's so many scenarios in which the U.S. government has done things that are no worse than what I just described for very stupid reasons. And so that, like, that's why when I read all these documents, it's like what I keep hearing in my head and what I hear in the Federal thing is Apple doesn't want to be able to see your photos. Like they don't even want to be able to do it. It's kind of like the reason they were able to resist the FBI thing is they, there's literally nothing they can do, right? At right now, Apple can, is able, yes, there are policies and processes involved, but they're able to see your photos. And it's much easier for Apple to say, we literally can't do that. We don't have the keys. That's where Apple wants to be. That's how these CSAM features have been designed. But that is not how iCloud backups and iCloud photo library are designed. And so those two features are not in keeping with everything that Apple is doing and saying about, like, they would prefer not to. And the CSAM thing is like, again, with the, the potential of end to end in the future, if these EU and UK laws come down that requires Apple to scan, now they can still do that with end-to-end encryption. Like it doesn't it doesn't prevent them from doing end-to-end encryption on the iCloud photo library. Like they're they're now well positioned to comply with all laws, but also no longer be able to see things on their servers, which will then, like I said, make the CSAM feature much more dangerous. So it's a weird situation they're in, and Apple's 
you know, some other people said this on other uh, podcasts I listened to that like Apple secrecy about this means that we don't hear anything and all of a sudden it just arrives and I was like, oh, what's all this stuff? And they announced everything <laughs> altogether. And their secrecy also means that they're not going to tell us that this is a precursor to doing end-to-end encryption. So we just had to guess. And so we don't really know quite how to feel about it. So it's weird and complicated. And I think Apple's Apple's actual security like threat model of you know their entire company is very different than what they're doing more recently. And the things they're doing more recently lean in one direction very strongly, but the things they've done in the past are variable, to say the least. Yeah, it's it's a mess. Like, I, I, I don't need to you know, rehash everything we talked about last week, but they're kind of darned if they do, darned if they don't. And I think in a lot of ways, they've kind of set themselves up in this position because of secrecy, because of, oh, we're the most private of all the people or all the companies. And so it's just, it's tough. I mean, it, can you blame, like, they knew this was going to be a problem. That's why they announced it yeah. on, you know, late in the weekend in August. Like, it's, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> this is, this is when you drop, you know, news that, that might be unpopular is you drop it, you know, Thursday or Friday in August. <laughs> like it's hot. I don't think they had that much to worry about because I think most of the people flipping out about this are people who are like tech nerds or into the security world. But like, in terms of a story that has legs with the general public, I mean, there's the possibility that it sort of, you know, latches on as like, Apple's always scanning your phone, but even those things like the whole uh, Facebook is listening on your microphone or whatever. I think people lose interest in those. Maybe they're just not juicy enough. This is the problem with lots of tech security related stuff for good and for bad. When something really bad happens, it's very difficult to get regular people to care about it because it just seems so weird and esoteric and you have to convince them of these fourth order effects that may affect them. And it's, it's, it's why we get so many bad laws. I mean, remember how much we fought against the DMCA and everything and all of the, you know, bad things that that could cause. And now if there's, three milliseconds of music from a passing car in your YouTube video, one strike is against you, and soon your livelihood's going to be gone if it happens three times, right? Like, yep, yep, yep. the consequences happened, still no one cares. It's like, that's just the way the thing is. No copyright intended. It's, like, oh, it's, just, it's hard to get people to care. It's hard to get people to care about these issues. And so Apple, in this case, I feel like Apple is going to benefit from that uh, apathy of the general public. Uh, speaking of benefiting from apathy from the general public, what do you guys think about Electron? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm so happy we finally got to this. Uh, it was like it was pressing on us because it had just happened like right before we recorded last week. But, you know, we were not going to have room for it in the show with all the CSAM stuff last week. So here we go. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I, for my own benefit, I would like to issue a, a quick series of disclosures. Uh, first of all, one password, uh, has sponsored the show in the past, most recently on the 8th of June, which was episode 434. Um, you probably won't believe it based on this conversation we're about to have, but they have sponsored us in the past. Well, and, and to be clear, they, they sponsored us one time. They, there are currently no future sponsors booked, sponsorships booked with them. Um, although I wouldn't, I don't think we would turn them down because Mm-mm. I still use one password and like them as a company. And yep. we are, I think, about to criticize them. And I think this should tell you listeners that we are not afraid to criticize sponsors. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I, I hope you trust us on that because we're, we're going to just, you know, let it rip here and, you know, I, I think we will be civil to them because I think that's just our style most of the time. Uh, but we will criticize them freely. So here we go. You're not going to suggest that their CEO be fired? <laughs> <laughs> we only do that to Apple. Yeah, only Apple. <laughs> only Apple. Uh, that's funny. Uh, no, but I do want to also note that the one password people that, that I've spoken to, and I, I don't know any of them terribly well, but any of the ones that I've spoken to have been incredibly, impossibly nice people because, hey, guess what? A lot of them are Canadian, so that stands. Uh, but they are very, very nice. I do think they are well-meaning, but don't like 
the decisions of late, I got to tell you, gentlemen. So uh, this morning, I downloaded 1Password8 beta for macOS, which is, uh, which is now being written or has been written in Electron. Electron, again, is the cross-platform thing, app framework that lets you allegedly ostensibly write once, run anywhere. Uh, it is based on web technologies. And so in my personal estimation, it's write once, feel not native everywhere. Uh, so it does kind of work everywhere, but it doesn't feel native anywhere. And there's probably 350 different takes we can have on this or different approaches on this. But I think the thing that really bums me out that I'd like to say up front is there, there's, a, there's a list of software. There's not a long list, but a list of software that I feel like I evangelize because I love it. I really, really love the software. And hand to God, 1Password has always been on that list. And this list for me anyway is very, very short. 1Password so far has been pretty much bulletproof for me. I personally really like their subscription service. I know a lot of people are deeply turned off by it, and that's fine. I can totally understand why you would feel that way. But for me, I, I jumped on 1Password for Families early, and it has become absolutely critical for Aaron and I to share important passwords and also documents between each other in a way that's secure and safe. And I have always held their their apps, their entire uh, Apple app suite. I can't speak for Windows or, or Linux, but I can, or or, or uh, for um, uh, Android either. But apparently, Marco can either confirm what I'm about to say or deny it. But at least on Apple platforms, their apps have always been excellent platform citizens. By that I mean, whatever the convention of the particular platform we're talking about, whatever the convention is on iOS, whatever the convention is on macOS, perhaps Marco uh, on on Windows or maybe Android, they've always treated that platform well, and they've always acted as a good citizen within the platform. You know, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Well, they've always done that very well, irrespective of platform. Is that true on Windows too? Um, I, I mean, I've used one password on Windows for a total of like 20 minutes, but, <laughs> and, and I've used Windows, you know, outside of a game, I've used sure. Windows for not that much more than that in the last you know decade or more. Uh, so I can't really say how good of a Windows app it is compared to other Windows apps. But I can say that as a 1Password user for many years, as a 1Password family plan user, again, I think I mentioned this all during the ad, and certainly we've talked about them occasionally here and there before. Um, you know, We have it for my family. We like it. It works well. Uh, for the most part, I have a few asterisks on that, but for the most part, it works well. It has worked well. One of the great things about it, that that is you know that I think is a, a major advantage it has over Apple's you know iCloud Keychain stuff that's been increasing in scope over the last few years um, is that I can use it on Windows and, and this is not even that new I mean for a while they had they would they would have like this like JavaScript web app you could export and have that work you know on Windows or anything else um, they re they at some point in the last few years I believe they started offering the, the actual like native Windows client um, I haven't used it on Linux sorry I mean who has. But, you know, but um, <laughs> next year, next, next year is the year. But the cross-platform nature, like being able, like when I was setting up a gaming PC, being able to have all my passwords in there for you know all of the stupid Microsoft accounts and Dropbox and everything, it was really nice. It, it's a very convenient thing to have that available uh, cross-platform. So uh, I I very much value one password and. And I think what, what we're about to get into here is is their their um, their b new beta for their new stuff. And 
it really suggests that the client experience of 1Password is about to get worse. And that makes me sad because it, I've had, for the most part, only very good things to say about it. I mean, the only problems I've really had with it in in the last eh, maybe year or so, I've found the browser plugin to be less reliable um, at various things. But otherwise, it, it's been great for years before that. Uh, and the fact that it's about to get worse in certain ways, uh, it, it seems like a, a really unfortunate thing and and possibly an avoidable thing. Yeah, and real-time follow-up. As of just a few hours ago, Apple released iCloud for Windows 12.5, which apparently includes a password manager app. So Really? They don't have one on the use- Mac? Well, <laughs> Unless you count Keychain key access, baby. which is terrible. <laughs> oh, come on. Keychain's well, the best. In uh, Monterey, they moved it into uh, system preferences, so there's a preference pane for passwords. Oh, that's Mac. right. Yeah, that's a little better. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's, that's probably kind of where you'd expect to see it keychain access is more like a utilities folder kind of thing but like if you just like normal people don't use keychain access but i feel like normal people will go to system preferences and click on the thing that says passwords and that's the exposure to the new like the new password thing has like a two-factor thing built in and will generate your passwords and it's also by the way reflected in safari in monterey so like safari has it in its own preferences like also decked out with the new features but they also put it in system preferences because that's where people will look for it so things are getting Better and slightly more featureful on the Mac. Still nowhere close to one password's features. You haven't even mentioned the family thing, which I think is the real killer the real killer feature of one password, even if you never do anything cross platform. Narrator, they both mentioned it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, that's the that's the thing is that uh, for me, what I love about one password is as compared to like iCloud keychain is that first of all, I can store things other than passwords. And maybe you can in iCloud keychain, but last I had looked at it, that wasn't the case. You know, I can store documents, I can store notes, I can store things that aren't just passwords, which for me is very important. You can you can store notes. I have I haven't tried documents, but you can just make notes in keychain access. I'm pretty sure. Okay, well, I also keep like PDFs, for example, and things like that in there. Yeah, I keep like a scan of my driver's license. You know, exactly. it's like things are, it's, it's handy to have this kind of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and again, as both Marco and I were uh, evangelizing and, and touting uh, 1Password for families, or, you know, when I last had a real job, I brought 1Password to our company, and we were using 1Password for business. At the same time, I was using 1Password for families. And all of that intermingled really, really well, actually. Uh, so, again... I love 1Password the service. I personally love paying for 1Password the service. I mean, I mean that genuinely because not only are the people very good in, in the apps until maybe now, really good, but the service is really good. And it, and it genuinely makes my online life better and more secure. And for that, I think it's well worth whatever money it is I pay them every year. Uh, but yeah, this new this new beta Mac app is based on Electron. And again, that means it's written in JavaScript and apparently a whole bunch of Rust. They're very excited about Rust over there. And what that means is, in my personal opinion, it will never feel properly and truly native. Now, can you get close? You certainly can. But take, for me, the canonical good Electron app is Visual Studio Code. And Visual Studio Code, to me, is a genuinely genuinely and truly great app. Native, though? Eh, not really. It's a great app, but it doesn't really feel native. It doesn't really feel like it's part of the Mac. And that's okay, but what bums me out about 1Password is they have this long, 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 like 15 or 20 year history of being excellent platform systems everywhere. Excellent platform citizens, excuse me, everywhere. And this 
certainly doesn't smell like it's going to be the case too much longer. And I have installed the beta um, and I've used it for a little while. And as the three of us do, I have thoughts. Do you want <laughs> me to start? Do you want me to start diving into this or would we rather kind of talk about, Oh, Penny is not on airplane mode right now. Uh, would you rather, <laughs> let me just reboot that whole thing. Would you like to have me go into my particulars or would you rather talk kind of more generally previous uh, before we get into that? I think you should go through your, your list of complaints because I think, I mean, I, I think it's important that you made this list because lots of people will say this, Oh, it uses web technologies and there it doesn't feel native on the Mac or whatever, but like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean in concrete terms? How does it affect me as the user? What if I'm not a touchy-feely person who has this inherent feel of, if I can, I can feel this isn't right for the Mac? Like, what are the actual consequences? And I think that's what you have a list of here. We, we say that all the time, but I think it's important to, to nail it down. So please do. Yeah, so I went on a Twitter rant about this, um, which I, I directed at the 1Password account. So if you happen to follow me but don't follow 1Password, you wouldn't have seen it. Uh, I'll put an, an unrolled version of it uh, linked in the show notes. But nevertheless, um, so here's some examples. When I installed the beta, one of the first things it asked me on my iMac Pro, on my Intel iMac Pro, was, hey, do you want to use Touch ID? What? <laughs> I'm sorry, on my Intel iMac Pro? Yes, I would like to use Touch ID, but I can't. I'm, I can't. And that is a very silly thing that lasted two and a half seconds. But it's the sort of thing that if it were a native app, and perhaps there is a way with this new based on Electron app, maybe, or you know, powered by Electron or whatever, uh, maybe there's a, a way to get to the API that would tell them whether or not Touch ID is even available on this particular computer. But it, it, based on my experience, they certainly didn't bother trying to figure that out. And so this is a great example of like least common denominator user interface. One of the platforms that this app may run on has Touch ID. So screw it. Let's ask everyone about Touch ID, which is fine. Like, is it in and of itself a big deal? Certainly not. But that's my first paper cut, and I've been running this new app for 30 seconds. Okay, so let's say I go and I try to enter my master password. So I'm sorry, I should have said this already, but basically if you're not, if you've somehow lived under a rock and aren't familiar with one password, you have one password. You have a single password <laughs> that you opens up. You figured it out. You cracked it. Maybe that's why he became a dentist. <laughs> so you have this one password that, that once you open it up, then you have unique passwords for like everything under the sun. You have a unique password for Gmail, unique password for Facebook, and so on and so forth. So when you enter that one password incorrectly, in every version of one password I've ever used, or every native version, I don't recall if it did it on the web or not, but in every native version, though, the screen would shake side to side, just like the login screen does on a Mac. And at one point, I entered my password incorrectly, either on purpose or by accident, and nothing happened. It just said, that's not right. Is that a big deal? Certainly not. But I have, I've been using 1Password, geez, 10, 15, probably like 10 years. And I'm used to seeing a shake when I get the password wrong. I'm not even really looking at the screen, but I'm seeing something shaking side to side in my periphery. And I know, oh, I got to try that again. Again, something silly, something that maybe could be done, but at least as of the time in which we are recording, is not being done. And to be fair, it is a beta. Yeah, absolutely. But I think a lot of this stuff, ultimately, I, I think a lot of this stuff is is probably not going to improve for the final version. <laughs> and that's the thing is, if the ostensible reason for going to this electron-powered monstrosity is to have 
as little custom user interface on any given platform as you can get away with, then why would they make it shake? Unless they make it shake everywhere, and gosh knows that the animation APIs are going to be different on a Mac versus Windows and so on and so forth. So I, I, I don't think things like this are going to change. And I'd love to be wrong. Golly, the I would love more than almost anything in the world even more than eating crow about crypto, which I'm never going to do because I'm right, I would love to be able to eat crow on this and say, you know what, this new Electron version, you know, the final released version, hand to God, I can't tell the difference between this and the real one, and the native one, the real one, see what I did there, and the native one. Uh, so yeah, I was wrong. It's, it's, it's just fine. By the way, the animation APIs would be the same on all platforms because they'd be web APIs. That's the whole point of a web-based. Oh, that's true. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. You're right. It's just you're CSS right. animation. But but what you're getting at is the conventions. Like, did it always shake on Windows or was that just a Mac thing, right? Uh, is that a convention on Windows like it is in the Mac shaking when you get it wrong or is it not a convention? So if you did it everywhere, you may not be, you may not, like you said before, may not feel like a, a native citizen of the platform like that you're not complying with the conventions of your environment but instead are complying with the conventions that someone has decided it should be the same across all platforms right so then things got dodgy and i think i've since figured out what the problem is i suspect and i hope that this will get fixed by the time the beta is no longer a beta but when I first started trying to use this new 1Password 8 beta, it had me install a new version of the uh, of the extension for Safari, which makes perfect sense. It's totally reasonable. But it didn't seem like it really wanted to do anything. But it, like There was no solid communication between Safari and the actual app. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what, what I was doing wrong. But you know, I would go to hit the little icon in the toolbar in Safari, which in the in the past would ask me to enter my password right there in the extension, which I believe is not the case anymore. I think I was running an old extension or something like that. I'm a little wishy-washy on this, so I, I might be lying. But one way or another, the, the extension that I was used to was that it would let me enter the password right there in the extension, and then it would give me my list of passwords you know, for, for that particular website. Well, now it's asking, it's kicking open the full app, which is kind of annoying because it's a context switch I'm not expecting and don't particularly want, but okay, fine. Uh, but then when I tried, to, when I would successfully enter my password, the extension would just sit there and spin. Okay, so I tried it again. Same story. Eventually, I figured out what appears to be the problem was I made the critical mistake of asking 1Password not to be in my menu bar on my Mac, which is something I've done forever. I really don't like menu bar items except the ones I, I, I want up there, which is funny because I have like 304 up there, but they're the ones I want, darn it. And no, so, I am so with you on this, by the way. I'm a thousand percent with you on that. <laughs> Right. Thank you. And so I hate having things that I don't want on my menu bar. And yes, I'm aware that Bartender exists. I don't want to use Bartender. I just want to have the stuff I want up there. And so immediately when I had installed the beta, I took the, you know, the I had checked the, or unchecked, I guess I should say, the option of having one pass through the menu bar. And kudos to them that that option was already there in the beta. Everything was great. Except it appears that by taking it out of the menu bar, I have also killed the like daemon, for lack of a better term, you know, the the, the always resident uh, server, if you will, that's within my Mac in order to communicate with one password. So when my when Safari was going to talk to the daemon, it wasn't there. It's pronounced affluent. <laughs> Did I? Oh, God. I don't even know what I just said that made you think of that. But um, anyways, the point is that I was trying to get to this 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 process that wasn't there. And so it wasn't working. And then once I finally figured out, Oh, I wonder if I need to keep one password in the minute. Oh, okay, great. 
So apparently I do need to have the menu bar icon there, which I really, really don't want. And again, I would hope and suspect that this will get fixed in the future, but if it's the way, if this is the way it is forever, I'm going to be real grumpy about it. It's a dumb thing to be grumpy about, but darn it, I'm going to be no, grumpy no, no. about this it. Is not, no, I mean, first of all, it's probably just a beta bug. But second I of all, agree, I agree. I, if, the, if that were actually how it would ship, I would be grumpy about that too, because I, and this is, I think, part of the larger picture here, but I hate when I install something that is, to me, a utility, and it wants to take over my computer. Yep. And it's like, hey, you know what? Did you know we now do all of these other things? Now you can use, you know, Dropbox is the biggest, biggest example of this in recent years. But it's like, yep. now you can use us for all your collaboration and tool. And it's like, no, I don't want, it's just, I, you're, you are a utility, not my entire computer. My computer is not yours. And and when when applications that have no good reason to have a menu bar item put one there, especially as they all, almost always do by default. Uh, and it's like, now we're running all the time to help you out. It's like, no, you're running all the time to help you out, not to help me out. Uh, so yeah, there's, <laughs> I am totally with you on like basically keeping these sprawling businesses apps from sprawling all over my computer. It's like y- your business is making you do this, but that's not my problem. My problem is this utility app that I thought was only going to do this one basic thing in a normal way wants to grab more real estate than I think it deserves. Except for my two apps, which do have to be running all the time and only appear in the menu bar. <laughs> they're fine, right? Are they Electron? <laughs> <laughs> they're brutal. They are not. But if they're not running all the time, they don't work. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, so Andrew Byer in the chat is telling me uh, one of the big uh, Andrew works on one password. One of the big changes between one password seven and eight is our change from Safari app extensions to a web extension, which comes with some new Apple API issues. Safari 15 brings a bunch of improvements on Mac OS, like the popover opening speed. So that that's hope. I'm hopeful to see that those improvements land. And, and I think like I was alluding to earlier, Perhaps I was using like an ancient version of the extension, and that's part of the reason why I find this new one so crummy is because not only is it working with the crummier native app, but on top of that, I'm using the crummier new APIs that Apple is giving one password. So it's just crummy all the way down. Um, and, And those are just a handful of examples of why I was not in love and am not in love with the new beta. Again, it is certainly possible all these things will be fixed. I'd be surprised, but it is possible. But... The thing of it is, is that one password, as I've said this before, I'll say it a few more times, was always, to use a gruberism, it was always a Mac-assed Mac app. It was always a really strong, really solid Mac app. I'm sure I could come up with complaints about 1Password 7, but for the most part, it was a really great shining example, you know, almost to a panic level of what a great Mac app could be. And I would say the same with the iOS apps too. I'm sure I could come up with complaints, but on the whole, they were really, really, really great solid apps. And now I feel like it's an app on my computer. It's just another one. And that's fine. Like, I guess one could argue that that I should not get my engine revved as much as I used to by a password manager. But darn it, there's not a lot of things to be happy about these days. And it always made me happy. And 1Password 8 does not make me happy. Uh, with that said, to give credit where credit is potentially due, uh, I did not take this, uh, or I did not compare to 1Password 7, but I did look at the memory usage of 1Password 8. And one of the things that people love to whine about, including me, with regard to electron-powered stuff, is that it uses a butt-ton of memory. And when I looked earlier today, I was using about 135 megs of memory at 
you know, idle, which is a lot and is more than it should be, but is not like the 17 gigs that Chrome uses when it's looking at, you know, uh, about blank. So it certainly could be worse. Um, there is a long explanation that Dave Tier wrote. Uh, Dave was one of the co-founders of 1Password that explains kind of the history of of uh, 1Password for Linux. And he and I exchanged a couple of tweets earlier today. Uh, again, nicest guy. Everyone there is so nice. Uh, David offered, and we just crisscrossed on timing, to get on the phone with me to talk about kind of the motivations of um, of why they're, they're going the way they're going, um, which most of me honestly does not really care or want to hear, but because I love 1Password and the people there so much, I was going to hear them out and at least entertain the conversation. As it turns out, the, the timing just didn't work out. But this Medium post goes through, like, how did you, how did 1Password land on on Electron power, uh, uh, being powered by Electron as, as the way forward? And I guess what I keep coming back to, and it is so easy for me to armchair quarterback, but hey, that's what I do for a living now. Uh, it's so easy for me to armchair quarterback, but it seems to me that this is this is not the way forward that I want or sh- or that I think ultimately one password wants because what it gives them is a kind of meh experience everywhere rather than an a certainly more difficult more expensive more time consuming but ultimately excellent experience everywhere. And I think, I don't want to get into it yet, but I think we should talk a little bit about what their alternatives were, um, both with regards to SwiftUI and Catalyst, but let's let's put that in the parking lot uh, for a minute and let's come back to that. Uh, I don't know, I've been talking for a long time. Gentlemen, what's your take on this? You should mention the blog post on the 1Password site itself that also goes through this from a slightly different perspective than the Medium post. In fact, that's the first place I would say you should look to, where the company explains how did we end up where we are? We previously had like a Mac app and a Windows app or whatever. How did we end up where we have this Electron app across all the platforms? And I think it, I think it explains it well. There's a bunch of quotes in here about their various requirements and like you know that like it, it explains basically that they this wasn't they had there's like a plan A and a plan B or I don't even know which one would be A or B. But when they did the Mac app, they were, had the Electron one and they also had a Swift UI app and they were doing both presumably to see like which one's going to work out better. And in the end, the one that worked out better was the Electron one. And so they went with that. Like, it's not like they decided from day one, we're going Electron everywhere. They were hedging their bets saying, we should try making a native Mac app, try using SwiftUI, you know, get some cross-platform stuff with iOS and iPadOS or whatever. Uh, and it just turned out that the Electron one was the very best. But anyway, they, they explain it in the blog post. You can read it. But I think they go into this a little bit, but the underlying assumption, which I think is true, is that part of 1Password's value as a product is the fact that it is cross-platform. Apple's keychain is just now trying to kind of be like that. Oh, hey, we have a Windows app, but 1Password, I mean, 1Password runs on Linux, for crying out loud. It runs on Android, <laughs> runs on Windows, runs like, like their selling point is, you know, especially for a password manager, as Marco figured out, even if you are essentially a one-platform household, using a password manager that is available many different places can come in surprisingly handy that one time you do end up having an Android phone briefly or having a Windows PC for gaming or whatever. It's convenient, like, because that's exactly the type of thing, like, when you go to another password uh, platform, your passwords don't change or disappear. Like, you still have whatever, your Dropbox account, your Microsoft account, your login to Amazon.com, whatever, right? That's still you. You are the same person, so why shouldn't your passwords come with you? 
So it makes perfect sense that a company like One Password correctly realizes like two things. One, a part a great part of our value is that we're cross platform. And two, within the realm of any single platform, we are essentially competing against the platform vendor. Apple has a solution to this called iCloud Keychain, right? But and if you're one password, you're like, well, on the Apple platform, not that our days are numbered because Apple's probably never going to have all the features that one password does. And, you know, one password probably cares more about this than Apple does. But anytime you're competing with a built-in feature, the built-in feature doesn't actually have to be better than you to sort of gobble up your market share. So it's kind of dangerous to sort of bet the future of your company on the fact that we'll always have a better password manager than Apple and people will be able to recognize that we have the better password manager and reward us by paying money for a thing they get they could get for free with their OS. It's much better to say we need to go cross-platform because we feel like that's an area where maybe they at one time thought that's an area where Apple won't go. Apple has proved them wrong with their Windows iCloud <laughs> stuff that they've been doing in recent years. But you can have more confidence that even if Apple does go there, Apple's track record of making really good Windows apps has not been great. See Safari for Windows, QuickTime for Windows, basically anything they've ever done for Windows. Uh, the boot camp drivers for Windows, maybe. Um, so that is a that's a better strategy for the company. So I like that's the context of this thing. Why why do they care about cross platform? And then from there, everything else follows this in this blog post. Like, how many people are me? How much money has been invested? The investors want to see in their return and their investment. We need to do the thing that is the strength of our company, right? Uh, you know, how much time and energy have we spent for the past years with all the years that Casey loved where they had a really, you know, <laughs> Mac native app, uh, as they describe in their blog post, it became a problem trying to coordinate two teams making two separate applications. And it was making them as a company move more slowly and take more time to add features like kind of like reading the threat model, of the CSAM thing. If you read the document in isolation, you will be nodding your head and going, yes, yeah, this all makes sense, right? Uh, but where the rubber meets the road is what Casey was talking about. It's like, okay, but I'm not an employee or shareholder of 1Password. I'm just a user of their product, uh, and my experience has gotten worse. Now, I have to say the list of things that Casey went down here, a lot of them seem like, you know, potential beta bugs or small things that aren't a big deal. But I think the the, the earlier point that you made about Visual Studio is a good one. Um most users don't know or care what API their app use, but within any given API, you can have a good Electron app or you can have a bad one. My, my choice for a good Electron app, I think Slack is still Electron, right? Or an app that uses web technologies or web views or whatever. Like there is a huge difference between a good Electron app and a bad one. I say this as someone who uses Teams and Slack. I don't know if Teams is Electron. I hope it is because there's no other excuse for it to be so horrible on the Mac. <laughs> like it looks like it's using web technology. It is so much worse than Slack. It's not even funny, right? Same thing, pick an API. UIKit on the iPhone. You can make a good app with UIKit and you can make a bad app, right? And I think the range between a good app within a given framework and a bad app within a given framework is probably bigger than the average range between apps on different frameworks, right? So it's not ridiculous to think that one password strategy of using Electron, like it has huge benefits for their ability, for for their velocity, as we say in the business, for their ability to get features, <laughs> for their ability to get features out the door in a timely manner, to have a consistent experience across all their platforms, to be able to roll out features simultaneously. Like there's all these reasons. And the Rust backend is, you know, like making the core and across platform Rust, you know, a, a language with more safety features. Like it all makes tech sense. Um, but I don't want to minimize Casey's, you know, complaints here because the bottom line is as a, like 
you would hope one password eight here it is that as a user of this app you would be excited because the app would get in your estimation better and thus far casey is not excited about the app getting better i mean you can offset this with new features and maybe if you did hop across platforms a lot you you would enjoy the consistency where before they were different for weird reasons or they got features at different times but that's the challenge for one password the company and the product is to one make a really good electron app and two try not to downgrade the user experience of your customers from what they are previously accustomed to and it sounds like at least in casey's estimation it feels like a downgrade right now even though it's just a beta it definitely does feel like a downgrade but again the complaints i have so far are beta kind of complaints and they're not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. And the actual app itself, I haven't spent too much time with it today. I, I don't, I, I feel like there's a lot of white space here that isn't necessary, but that's a quibble of a quibble of a quibble. The app itself seems like it's perfectly functional and will work just fine, which really, especially for a beta this early, is pretty high praise. Like if the app itself is workable and sufficient, then one could make an argument that I should get off my high horse and you might be right and just shut up and deal. But it just makes me sad, man, because it was such not, a great that's app. That's not what I said at all. No, 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 I'm not saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth at all. I just mean in general, one could say, the royal you could say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm whining and moaning about nothing. And, and maybe that's true. But I don't know. It just it makes me so sad that, that what was once a shining example, at least today, is not a shining example. Now, maybe it will be later. I don't know. But it's not today. And, and, and it still bums me out. Do you feel like it's a good Electron app? Like, uh, you know, compare it to whatever your favorite is, Visual Studio Code, Slack, or whatever. Do you feel like it is within the bounds of Electron and web technology? Does it feel like a good one or does it feel like Teams? Uh, well, I, I haven't used Teams, but I take the point you're driving at. Uh, yeah, it's good. It, yep, yeah, it's good. But again, like, I, I would never say that about the old one password. I would say it's friggin' great. But yeah, you, you were enthusiastic. Yeah, I, I, I totally get it. So, so here's the thing. Like, uh, I don't want to take one password off the hook um because you know as they outlined in their you know in their thing here like an option that was on the table is to just continue making a complete native mac app like they had always made with a rust core underneath it which would probably mean rewriting the whole thing from scratch or whatever but that would be more expensive and time consuming and difficult than doing what they did right and maybe Maybe they'll change their mind about that depending on what the feedback is like, or maybe most people don't even care, and as long as they have a good Electron app, it'll be fine. But there is a portion of blame for this whole situation that lands squarely in the lap of Apple, and it's not really yep. super Apple's... I mean, oh, we'll get there. I, yeah, I'm not going to say yeah. I'm, I'm going to get there now, because I don't think... It, I, I want to oh, give come on, I want to talk about one password. Yeah, no, no, yeah, give, <laughs> oh, okay, give, give right, Marco right, a chance. Right, give right, Marco a chance. Go, go ahead. Have you used it? I didn't... I didn't I wasn't aware you'd used the version eight yet. I haven't, and that's that's kind of. I, I think this is. I want to like split this discussion between. I, I want to like in a moment. I want to close the book on one password and have kind of a separate discussion about you know the problem of Swift UI and Apple's cross platform stuff and how you know how Electron plays into that because I think the reason why we're seeing all this rage at one password over this right now I think is a combination of factors. I mean, first of all. Many long-time 1Password consumer users have been upset with the company's overall direction in the last few years towards their own sync service, with you know, towards subscription pricing. And, and this is like, you know, 1Password has kind of borne the brunt of a lot of just like the general consumer 
resentment towards things moving towards subscription pricing and like that. So like, there's a lot of that going into this. I think it's also worth noting the context of like the changes that one password has been going through as a company in the last few years. Like, you know, the, the news came out a couple weeks ago about their new uh, fundraising round. And I think this surprised a lot of people, myself included with like quite how big of a company they are now. So I, I pasted the link here. So, you know, it's raised $100 million, it's their second round. And then I think what's most interesting here is looking at how different the numbers are between their first round from two years ago and now. So they went in two years from 174 employees, which is way higher than I would have guessed that they had, <laughs> to 475. So at 475 employees currently work at one password it is a massive company they do 120 million dollars in revenue uh and if you look at also like they're they've getting getting into a lot more way more business stuff than than anything that the the three of us would even probably even know about let alone use they should be sponsoring us more i don't know that much money (laughs) (laughs) buy some more ads it's chump change for you and their number of business customers has nearly doubled in that time, according to all this news. So, like, if you look at, like, this is a company that has exploded in money, in people, in focus, and in scope over the last couple of years. And for those of us, like the three of us, or two of us, John, you don't even use it, do you? No, I don't use it, but I do recommend other people use it. Right. So, for, for Casey and I and many of the listeners who are, who are big 1Password fans for years, not only does this stuff mostly happen without us even knowing about it like all this growth into business and everything but most of this is stuff that will actively make this company worse for serving our needs or at least will will incentivize them to go in much different directions and focus in much different directions and so this i think this is why so much of this frustration and anger over the move to an electron app has hit one password in particular because they already had these other factors going that w- that were getting them a lot of resentment among certain groups of the community and, and i think that's that's not to be overlooked i also think despite what casey says i would not call one password the, the, the previous version a you know quote mac asked mac app it does use native frameworks but it has a ton of custom ui and it always has and i actually think it works pretty well but I can see why they are going in an electron direction because from their point of view, it's all, it was already super custom. Certainly. And I don't, I don't even necessarily care that much for the reasons why most people don't like electron apps. Most of the reasons are things like, well, it doesn't resize smoothly. Well, you know what? I, I don't resize my windows that often. I don't care. Uh, or <laughs> like it doesn't use the full native UI. It's like, well, look at this app. This is not native UI or this is not, I mean, standard, I would say standard UI. So already, you know, we're, we're already out of that, that realm here. Um, what I care about with Electron apps now, okay, we're going to slice this conversation right here. <laughs> this chapter change. All right. That was one password. <laughs> now we're going to talk about UI frameworks and the challenges there. Where What I care a lot about with Electron apps is not that they don't resize smoothly. It's not that their preferences window is a weird overlay inside the main window. That I, I honestly don't care much about that at all because that, I, those things don't get in my way very often. What gets in my way very often is two things. How incredibly bloated they are, especially at launch time, and 
how they tend to deviate from system standard behaviors, especially around things like keyboard navigation, shortcuts, things like that. And accessibility. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that doesn't affect me personally right at this moment very much, but that affects a ton of people in huge ways. So that's a huge one. So Electron apps in general, because they are this, you know, basically web views with fancy stuff around them or, uh, you know, within them, but basically all this, you know, custom web stuff, they tend to have a lot of just little paper cuts in use, just little things that don't work the way the system works, little behaviors that are a little bit different as you navigate or as you, as you work through the app or as you use keyboards or, as, or big things as you, as, you know, assistive technologies. So there's all sorts of little ways that Electron apps make the customer experience worse. And the two of the biggest ones are memory usage, disk space, and I guess launch time too, <laughs> and counting. And <laughs> <laughs> counting. Um, and to me, the move to Electron, it has these externalities. It's, it's kind of like our Bitcoin discussion, but on a much smaller level. It has these externalities of we're going to waste significantly more memory, significantly more disk space, more time to launch the app, et cetera. Like we're, we're going to really bloat up the app's technical resource needs in a way that doesn't really help our customers at all. And we are actually foisting the externality of that onto our customers, onto all their devices. So we're going to take up all this disk space around the world, all this extra RAM around the world, on all these computers. We're going to make everyone's experience a little bit worse in order to save us some time and money. I think that's one of the reasons why this rubs people the wrong way. But I think that ultimately gets down to like what like that's the that's the biggest problem I have with Electron apps. Again, it's not it's not the animations and stuff. I, I honestly that's fine. My password manager has always looked totally weird <laughs> compared to other apps. I still like it. It's because it worked well. But if this move is going to make it work with as much mediocrity as every other Electron app I've ever seen, including things, you know, Slack, I'm like I, I've used I've used it enough now. I, I've seen enough. I know how this is likely to go. And even if they take all the care in the world to try to do their best, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be like a native app. It's going to be full of all those paper cuts, maybe fewer of them than if they you know, hadn't cared at all to fix any of them. But they're gonna, there's going to be all those paper cuts all throughout it. And for a company that has about 475 employees, I know these aren't all engineers. I know engineering and scaling engineering resources, these are not simple things. Uh, but I, I, I just... Ooh, I fell back into one password. Whoops. Uh, <laughs> I, I just don't <laughs> think this was a good decision of resource allocation. Like that if they, because it's not like they're starting from scratch. They already had native apps. <laughs> so it's like they're, they're throwing that away or throwing much of that away. And, and I, I just, it seems like many common engineering foibles like have happened here. You know, they, they tried something new. It didn't work out. We'll get to that in a moment. Don't worry, John. <laughs> they tried something new. It didn't work out. And so they didn't even seem to consider, well, why don't we just do what we were doing before? Well, I mean, the, the reason they didn't do what they were doing before, they explained in the blog post, because what they were doing before, they knew for a fact had these certain problems in terms of coordination and time to market and synchronizing features between things. And like, like that's why they didn't just say, why don't we just go back to what we're doing? before like so i kind of understand where they're coming from like they had a status quo and the status quo was not meeting the needs of the business so they need to do something i mean yeah that's i i get that argument i don't necessarily know if i agree with the conclusions that companies come to sometimes with that argument which often leads to things like electron um because you know they, there's it's always it's very much it's a grass is always greener situation to to a large degree you know electron is not 
free uh, and it has its own downsides. And I mean, this is true. Like anytime a large engineering decision is made to switch to some massive new framework, for, like for instance, I think even trying Swift UI for a company of this size for uh, for a, a company that the Mac app is so important, I think they should never even tried Swift UI. Like that, it's it, or you know, one engineer should have tried it for a weekend, realized it's not ready, and stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that they had invested very heavily into it, I think that that shows like that was a misdirection. I think um, anyway. So again, I don't want to spend too much time on them specifically on this because I, I think it's much more about the general like you know Electron in general. My problem with it is that you know that externalizing the downsides to your user base to save yourself you know a couple engineers when you're a big company like that that to me i i don't i don't appreciate that as a user of these things and and as a one password user in particular it's oh god i fell back into it again i see why people are mad because they've taken the same path as dropbox and many other companies where like it starts out as this consumer thing that we all love and then it turns out, you know, they the, the consumer thing can't really have like this massive explosive growth business or it's hard when the platform makers move into it or whatever. There's uh, there's major reasons why they want to explode into the business world. So the company, you know, balloons in size and in financing and they explode into the business world and do all these business features. And it it leaves behind people like us who are like, well, we didn't really want any of that. And, and now this thing that we like and have come to rely on and that doesn't have a lot of good alternatives uh, is now going in this massive direction that is that is actively against the things that we that we like or that we value or that we need. Electron, <laughs> go ahead, John. <laughs> All right. So the the framework uh, question. This uh, this is tangentially related to one password, but is actually more of a, an Apple problem that they have to deal with, right? So the reason 1Password looked at SwiftUI is because in theory, and as pitched by Apple, SwiftUI is a framework where you can write an application and you can use a lot of that same code, if not the exact same application, depending on how you want to try to do it, on the Mac, on the phone, on the iPad, on the watch. Like, you know, it's it's Apple's cross-platform UI framework to the extent that it exists. So if part of the deal of this thing is, hey, we've got a problem, we've got all these native apps, the coordination is a big problem for us, um, let's try to unify, right? Step one in the unification that we haven't talked too much about is sort of doing the core in Rust in a cross-platform way, and I think that's a great idea. Uh, When we talk about the core, we're talking about like the part that doesn't have a user interface, just the guts of the machine. Using Rust, which is a language that has lots of rules about memory ownership and and type safety and everything, is a great idea for a security-conscious application rather than, say, writing it in C or some other language that has lots of security problems. Great. Make your core in that, right? Like, that's our new sort of new generation. We We used to have the core, but it was different on different platforms and it was kind of a pain. Let's write a new core in Rust. Then you have this core with no interface, and you have to decide... How do I put an interface on this? Uh, and 1Password didn't immediately jump to, let's just do Electron everywhere. We use the Rust core and then we'll do Electron for our UI. That wasn't their first thing. They thought of, okay, on Apple's platform, Apple actually has a newish native UI uh, framework that can target more than one Apple platform. So no, you can't use Swift UI across all of our platforms, Linux, Android, Windows, but we can get pretty much all the Apple platforms we care about with this one framework. So let's consider a bifurcated strategy, which is like Electron everywhere, except for on Apple platforms, we'll try using Swift UI, which in itself is, and you know, and Jason Snell wrote the story recently saying how the Mac just wasn't important enough for one password to do this. And in the end, that is true. But 
the idea that they looked at Swift UI at all shows that 1Password kind of knows where its bread is buttered. I don't know what their financials are, but 1Password with his roots as a Mac company, right? I think they were Mac first, right? For years before they even branched out. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I've always thought of them as a Mac company, was considering doing a totally different framework just for Apple's platforms. Maybe that makes financial sense. I don't know what percentage of, of 1Password's customers are on Apple platforms versus not, but that was a thing that they considered, which I think shows that either financially it makes some sense for them to do that or just emotionally because they feel the roots in the Apple platform that they were considering doing that, right? That didn't work out for reasons that, you know, anyone who's tried to use SwiftUI uh, in the past several years understands SwiftUI is young. It has lots of limitations. I don't think it's impossible to pull off a 1Password application on SwiftUI, but you would then have to decide what to mix it with because there are things that the SwiftUI can't do or can't do easily or can't do feasibly, and, and you have to, like, mix it with something. So you can mix SwiftUI with AppKit like I do in my apps. You can mix SwiftUI with UIKit and a Catalyst app. What are the other options you have? I mean, you can do pure Swift UI, but that's probably, like I said, that's probably not going to fly. And then once you're doing that, now you're losing a lot of the cross-platform part of it, depending on how you look at it. If you do it in Catalyst, you can say, well, if we're going to do it in Catalyst, why do we need Swift UI at all? Why don't we just use Catalyst app for our Mac and then use that same UI kit code for the phone and the iPad? And you have a whole bunch of different options on the various Apple platforms, right? But they didn't have time to run all those experiments. So they said, well, when the Swift UI one didn't work, let's just do Electron everywhere because Electron runs on the Mac. But that whole soup that I just explained is part of Apple's problem. SwiftUI is Apple's newest framework, and it is the one that has the potential to run on the most platforms, but it's young, and it's not really up to maybe the task of an app like uh, 1Password at this point. Catalyst also exists, uh, and it's a way if you are coming from a UI kit and you either have an existing UI kit application on the iPad or the iPhone, or you just know UI kit because you've been developing on those platforms, but you want to write a Mac app, now you can write a Mac app in UIKit, sneaking into AppKit every once in a while to do stuff. And then, of course, there's AppKit, the old the old API that, that is superseded, maybe, by Catalyst and or SwiftUI. This is not a great situation for the Mac because like, the reason you see among the little circles that we travel and lots of discussions of all these, these different words, Catalyst, AppKit, and SwiftUI, is that there is no obvious answer for all situations on how to develop a native Mac app. Setting aside Electron, what should I use? And there's almost like a flowchart of like, well, do you have an existing UI kit app? Uh, are you writing from scratch? Do you have an existing app kit app? Are you going to target the watch? Are you going to target the iPhone? Like, uh, you know, how complicated is your application? What is your tolerance for bugs and immaturity? Apple has been in this place before, many, many times over the years. I'm just going to go back to the, to the most recent one, but there are, if you keep going back in time, there's more and, and more and more ones for uh, even older people. Uh, the most recent time Apple found itself in the scenario is the dawn of Mac OS X. Uh, before Mac OS X, Apple tried to do an OS called Rhapsody, which is basically the same as Mac OS X, but without the ability to easily port uh, classic Mac OS maps, uh, apps to it. And that uh, OS strategy didn't fly... Uh, mostly because the companies that had existing Mac apps said, yeah, no, we're not going to rewrite our apps. Like Microsoft said, no, we're not rewriting Office for the next step APIs. And Adobe said, no, we're not rewriting Photoshop for the next step APIs, right? So Apple had to come up with Mac OS X, which was basically Rhapsody, plus a new API called Carbon, which was essentially the the parts of the old classic Mac API that they could port in a safe way to a modern operating system, right? 
And then Microsoft ported its apps to Carbon, and Adobe ported its apps to Carbon. And then all the next developers ported their apps to Cocoa. Not ported, they were already basically... They renamed a bunch of stuff and got their, got their uh, <laughs> AppKit apps to, to run in Cocoa. And for years, for many, many years, it seemed like a longer time than it actually was, but for, for, for many years in the beginning of Mac OS X, there were two ways to write a native Mac OS X app. You could write in Carbon, and you could, or you could write in Cocoa. And people would ask questions. I want to write a Mac app. Which API should I use? And you'd go through the flowchart. Do you have an existing Mac app? If you do, you should probably use Carbon because you can easily port it to that. Do you have an existing Next App app? If you do, you shouldn't use Cocoa because it's basically the same API and you just rename some stuff and it'll be fine. What if I'm starting from scratch? Well, do you know Objective-C? What's Objective-C? Do you, how do you feel <laughs> about square brackets? Um, like... like what languages do you know? What APIs? Do you know? Have you ever made another Mac app before? What APIs are you familiar with, right? And it, like, aside from the obvious ones, which is like, hey, I've I've got Adobe Photoshop. I should obviously go with Carbon because I'm not rewriting it in Next App. Or I've got like OmniWeb. I should obviously use AppKit because that's the one. There was no obvious answer, and Apple wouldn't tell you like what you should do. They would say they would just say, well, you know, like use the one that you prefer we try to give them feature parity and as the years went on sometimes a feature would appear in AppKit first sometimes a feature would appear in carbon first some features were only available in carbon like a bunch of stuff having to do with classic mac os and the QuickTime stuff or whatever and then eventually some features were only available in coco and apple had a bunch of wwdc's where they do these sessions where we're like we're going to do feature parity and we're not going to do that anymore and every new thing that we come out with is going to be in in carbon and coco at the same time and you can see how, like, in one way, this is a necessary strategy because you can't have it in OS unless you can bring along all the apps. You need Microsoft Office, you need Internet Explorer, whatever the hell, right? And all these new Cocoa apps are new and exciting. They let people, individuals, make uh, applications on their own that then become popular, like NetNewsWire, written by one person through the magic of Cocoa. Like, these are both good things. I don't want to give either one of them up. I can't give up Carbon. And matter of fact is major parts of the operating system are Carbon only, and Cocoa apps end up needing to call into Carbon to do those things. But I can't give up Cocoa because there's so much excitement happening there, and people are writing apps that, you know, very quickly and writing these feature-filled apps because Cocoa is this amazing framework, and they're learning Objective-C and blah, blah, blah. During that time, a lot of developers really wished, Apple, just tell us which one we should use. Like which what what <laughs> which one should we use? Is it going to be carbon forever and ever, or is it going to be cocoa forever? Because you can't have both because it's just too confusing. And Apple would say, "Well, we need to have both right now." But developers, if you're on the cocoa side, you were saying, "We should just get rid of this carbon garbage. It's terrible. Objective C is the future. Everything should be AppKit." And if you're carbon, you'd be like, "What the hell is with this Objective C stuff? Like, no one uses that language. It makes no sense. It's so ugly. The API is stupid. All the real features are in carbon." Uh, why don't we just forget about that, just like we forgot about the Java interface to it, and just go with <laughs> Carbon forever? And you know, eventually, after what seemed like way, way too long, Apple made a decision, and the decision was Carbon, you're out, <laughs> and, it, and it's Cocoa from here on. Uh, and that was incredibly clarifying. For there was a period of time where you said, if you want to make a native application, Mac application, how do I do it? The answer was AppKit, Cocoa, period. That was it, because Carbon didn't come to 64-bit. And once the, once the OS was 64-bit only, which also took a long time, your only option was AppKit. And yeah, there's you know other models of building applications. You can make a Java app, but like a native Java app with all those widgets and web technologies and all sorts of stuff like that. But eventually, they made the call. We are back now in a situation that's even worse, where we have Catalyst, 
which is good for UI kit things. We have Swift UI, which is kind of like the new Cocoa. It's like the new hotness, although, you know, obviously Cocoa was a decade old technology when Apple bought it, unlike Swift UI. And then we have AppKit still lurking back there. All three of those things work today to make a Mac application. And Apple will not tell you which one of those is the real future. Maybe because they don't know. But right now they're doing the thing they did for years with Carbon and Cocoa. It's like, they're all pretty good. Just pick the one that's best for you. <laughs> I don't think that's a good strategy. But on the other hand, I don't think it's a good strategy to like ditch one at this point because, I mean, Catalyst debatably... <sighs> You know, when Catalyst came out, we didn't know about Swift UI. So Catalyst seemed like the future of the Mac. But then Swift UI came out, and it's like, now what the hell is the future, right? <laughs> and so if you're one password and you're trying to make a native Mac app, forget about Electron. It's not even clear what you should do. The only thing that's clear is that AppKit is probably not the future. But it's also the most full-featured API in the platform, and it can do all the things, and you can make amazing apps with it. But you're doing it, you feel like this is just not the future because this is not like Apple has introduced two new frameworks since then that both have a lot to say for them, right? Catalyst is great, and it's shared with UIKit and has great benefits as me as a developer. But SwiftUI is the new hotness. But then there's AppKit that has all the features. And if I use SwiftUI or Catalyst, I also have to go back into AppKit to get all those features. So maybe AppKit's the new carbon. And is AppKit not going to be ported to 128K or 128-bit? That's a joke. That's not coming. Don't worry. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's super confusing. So I understand Apple's situation. I understand why Apple doesn't come out and say, Swift UI, number one, that's the future. Everyone should go for it. Catalyst, weird stopgap. Don't worry about it. It's cool if you're going to port apps. AppKit, forget it. Screw it. It's dead, right? They don't say that. And so like every Mac developer has this difficult choice to make that's like make or break your app, right? I, I feel, almost feel worse for the people who have picked one, who have said, I'm going, I'm all in on Catalyst. Because what if Catalyst is the one that doesn't make it? I mean, I guess you get a few good years out of it. You got to not reuse a lot of your work that you did with UIKit, reuse your knowledge or whatever. It's great. But then five years from now, Catalyst is like sunset over the course of a few OS releases. You're going to have to rewrite your app in SwiftUI or, presume, or AppKit if AppKit is still around, right? And same thing is true. If SwiftUI just doesn't work out and ends up like fizzling and Catalyst is the true future and you really bought in on SwiftUI, what are you going to do then? So I feel for 1Password in this situation, it is almost like the safest bet in terms of future-proofing is to defer this decision and say, we're just going to go with Electron for now. Because they tried SwiftUI and it wasn't ready, and I totally believe them on that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely <laughs> right? believe them. And then and they probably didn't have time to go back on Catalyst, and it's like, well, we don't know what the right, we don't know which horse to bet on. So if we just do Electron and don't bet on any horse and go with a donkey, right, then we can just wait this out. And if it turns out our Mac customers really hate this and our Apple customers want us to do native, maybe by the time we revisit the decision in a year or two, it'll become more clear what we're supposed to do. But I really, really feel like Apple's current strategy of, of supporting both Catalyst and SwiftUI as the modern options on the Mac is untenable in the medium term. Within the next five years, Apple needs to make a call, I think, because there's just no way to support three major UI frameworks plus all the shared underlying stuff on the Mac and then complain when people choose Electron instead. Because like, well, what was my alternative? One of this, you know, alphabet soup of vaguely intercompatible APIs, none of which I can use in isolation to make a quote-unquote full-featured native Mac app? Because at this point, you can't even use like, well, I don't know, you can, you, you can probably still use AppKit to make a full-featured app. Is there anything you need to go into Catalyst or Swift UI for? No. App, right now, whatever you want to do on the Mac, AppKit does it. 
and AppKit, you know, AppKit is, you know, it, it the you know the parallel in iOS is obviously UIKit. It's like the, that's like the main framework that the other frameworks seem to be implemented in, you know, on the underlying levels, um, or at least in part. And AppKit is like it's it's the one that will be supported and maintained probably the longest on the Mac. I mean, in this case, like I think Swift UI. I mean, it's a it's a whole discussion probably for not for, probably for another day, but you know, Swift UI started as a watch framework, and then the other OSs kind of you know snatched it up and, and made it their own as well. But it started on the watch, and if you use Swift UI on all these platforms, that will make a lot of sense to know that <laughs> because <laughs> on the watch, it's pretty good, and I mean, and it, it was very badly needed compared to you know old watch kit ui stuff it that that was terrible and so it was badly needed and swift ui does well in simple contexts where the the scope of what you're trying to do with the ui is fairly low um it's it's not that complicated you're using mostly default behaviors and appearances of things you're not doing a lot of customization uh and you have relatively simple views and, and relatively simple needs and simple data models Watch apps tend to have that because watch apps have to be simplified for lots of other reasons. So it makes tons of sense on the watch, which is why it was born there. And it also has like, you know, less problem area to cover and it's most mature there. So on the watch, Swift UI is a no brainer. Yeah. If you're making an app on the watch, use Swift UI, period. As you move up to the like, you know, quote larger, I guess, <laughs> by screen size hat or uh, by complexity, certainly, you know, as you move, move to the larger platforms. You know, on the phone, Swift UI is well. It's a little less usable than on the watch. It, you know, it, there's there's more rough edges. There's more bugs. There's more like walls that you hit trying to do common customizations or common behaviors that UI kit apps have been doing forever. You hit more of those walls on iOS than you on watchOS for sure. It's you can tell that it's a little less tested. It's a little, a few more rough edges, and there are there are more ways. Once you go from watchOS to iOS and SwiftUI, there are more ways in which the SwiftUI model of doing things kind of breaks down or starts having a lot of really ugly, you know, things you have to be doing and jumping through hoops to get it to work right. Well, then take that onto the Mac, and it, you scale it up even further onto this. <laughs> the Mac is now even further than the watch, like in scope and everything mac apps tend to be significantly more complicated than ios apps in in their uis and their behaviors and what they have to accommodate what they have to do what's important and also the mac unlike ios is a way lower priority it gets way less engineering attention like in software terms um the the ui frame like swift ui and the mac doesn't seem like it's getting a lot of attention from anybody um because what a surprise look at mac os software quality over the last decade it's not as high of a priority as iOS. And so you have this framework that, that's been, you know, it's pretty opinionated and still pretty young and has a lot of really rough edges. And it's so, you know, it's it's pretty good on the platform that it was made for. But as you get bigger and more complicated, and then in the case of the Mac, as you get you know seemingly a lot less resources devoted to it, that's I don't think I don't think Swift UI on the Mac is ever gonna be great. I suspect Swift UI on the Mac to always be this kind of experimental thing that a lot of people try to use doesn't work out very well and they go to something else and then the problem there is what john was saying well what do you go to 
And AppKit is actually the right answer. Unfortunately, it doesn't feel good to go to AppKit for a brand new app in 2021. It, it feels like that's probably a bad decision, but with the realities of, of you know, Mac OS engineering priorities and quality priorities, I don't think Swift UI is ever going to be the right move on Mac. And Catalyst, I, I think, has been has proven to be mm, kind of like kind of like Electron. There's there's a lot of downsides to to usability. It's more like Carbon because it's saying, hey, we have a bunch of customers who have existing apps who would like to reuse that code and that skills on a different platform. So, you know, Catalyst is just carbon for UI kit, right? That, that's essentially what it is. It's even, it's even better than carbon because you don't even have to change as much code and they didn't have to. But that's, you know, you, we have to bring along, we, we have to bring along these developers because this is where all our developers, all our developers know UI kit. Very few of them know Mac stuff. If you want more Mac apps, we need a way for run UI kit on here. But it, it doesn't feel, it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it feels like carbon. It feels like. All right. Well, these people need to be able to bring their stuff along, and will and it feels like early carbon where there's not parity between the UIs, and they're very different, right? And so it's not clear, you know. It, like again, before Swift UI, Catalyst is, is I think we this is the name of the episode Extinction Level Event when it's like, well, that's it for AppKit then, because once you bring Catalyst over here, uh, like all those, why would anyone ever learn AppKit again? Because if you don't need to learn it, and you already know UIKit, and you have a way to run those apps on here. Why wouldn't just everybody do that? But now Swift UI is in the mix and it's even more confusing. And I don't want to say about Swift UI, the fact that it started out on the watch. It, I, I think I agree with you. It remains an, I would say it remains an open question as to whether the 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 sort of inter, the API paradigm, declarative interfaces as defined by Swift UI is sufficient or a good way to make very complicated Mac apps. We don't, the reason we don't know that yet is because Swift UI currently lacks tons of features that you just, it just doesn't have the features. And that's why people bang their head against the wall, trying to make Swift UI do a thing that it doesn't have features for yet. Right. Uh, once they add the feature to Swift UI, sometimes it's easy to do whatever the thing that you were trying to do. But if it doesn't have that feature at all, like, you know, first responder or, you know, controlling focus, trying to work trying to get that to work in some weird way feels terrible. But, if and when they add that feature, it's like, oh, now it's easy, right? Uh, but still, I don't. Honestly, I disagree with you on this. I, I think the, the biggest pain points of Swift UI, in my experience, again, I haven't tried making a Mac app with it. I have, you know, a lot of experience on the watch, some experience on iOS so far. My experience with Swift UI is not running into missing features; it's running into capabilities or behaviors that are really easy in UI kit, you know, in procedural uh, programming that are just really hard because of Swift UI's model. That that just like this declarative model, it the things that that it makes easy and or, or easier, it's like magic when you use it and you can you can make something so fast. I love Swift UI when I'm working within the things it's good at. Yep. And then I hit some little thing. It's like, "Wait a minute. I I can't ship this like this. I have to have it, you know, like when you, you know, it has to, it has to like deselect the cell correctly when I go back here or whatever. And, you know, I run into some little behavioral detail like that. And, oh, I just can't do that. Like it's not, it, it isn't that it's hard. Mm-hmm. I feel, I feel like that's a missing feature though, because if you had the, the, you know, uh, on defocused, uh, unselect, that would take you two seconds worth of typing if that feature existed. Well, some, so sometimes it's a missing feature or, but sometimes it's just like, I can't do this thing I'm trying to do. And I understand why I can't do it. Because the way the, the procedural nature or the declarative nature of this, yeah, that would be really hard to model in this kind of thing. Or 
I can do it, but it requires all this ugly crap hack workaround uh, because that's just not a thing that declarative UIs is are are well representing. You know, that's why I say it's an open question, though, because the flip side is also true. There are things that are a super pain in the butt to do in, in an imperative language that are trivial to do in a declarative one. And the the open question is. What does that ratio break down as? Like the things that Swift UI is good at versus the things that a non-declarative API is good at. What is the ratio of those in a typical app? And it's modified by like you having not having experience with this API, lots of people not having experience with an API like this, right? But that's why I feel like more people, you need more features to be able to build bigger apps. And then when you build the bigger apps, you need to figure out are the things that Swift UI is good at enough to offset the things it's bad at because you you know i think it's it's basically it's pretty non-overlapping set of like the things that AppKit is good at and the thing that it's bad at like it's a complementary you know set with with swift ui there's not a lot of overlap just because the models are so different right but what i wanted to get at with the what with this having origins on the watch is that one thing in swift ui's favor is it does well there's two sides of it it does a lot of things to be efficient part one of the advantages of being a declarative API is it's harder for you to add code that slows the system down because it takes your whole model, turns it into a structure, you know, figures out like all the the view combining and crap that you would have to do in like AppKit apps manually to improve your performance problems after watching 50 WWDC sessions. SwiftUI is doing that for you internally. Like you don't have to do that. The, The framework does it the framework will, in theory, figure out how to make your thing fast, figure out how to combine your views. Like, don't worry about making tons of little views in Swift UI. It's not actually making NS views for every single one of those things. The system will figure it out, right? Because it has to be efficient because it has to run the watch. The other side of that is, yeah, but the watch doesn't have much crap going on. In it. So really, what, like, has this actually been tested? Yes, it's, it's efficient enough to run the watch, but honestly, how many you know, Swift UI views can you fit on the watch screen? Like there's not that many of them, whereas a Mac app can have a ton of them. So this supposed system that's going to like turn everything into a, you know, a data structure and run it through this machine and make views to be an efficient way. Does that actually work when I have a table with like millions of cells and stuff, or does it fall over because AppKit has had multiple decades of optimization and actually, you know, NS table view or even hell UI collection view actually do this much better because they've been forged in the crucible of years and years and years of making this faster and having a WWDC session telling you how to make it faster and then repeating that cycle, right? So that's why Swift UI is a question mark, but there is a bunch of stuff in favor of it. It is good at things that other frameworks are not good at. It does have lots of technical things that in theory can make it very fast and efficient uh, without much developer effort. It does have the potential as Apple keeps pushing to be less bug prone because you don't have to worry about as many states uh, of you know the interface and you know having things be immutable versus mutable and declarative versus imperative like apple really pushes the benefits and they are real and they do make sense and they could all work out but we don't know if that's the case yet right all we know is that right now it's young it's got bugs it doesn't have all the features we need some parts of it are in fact slow when you try to do big things but it's too early it's too early to make a call Right. And then Catalyst is kind of the same thing. Catalyst is a known quantity. We know about UI kit, but there's a bunch of crap you can't do without falling down to app kit. And until very recently, it's been very difficult to make an app that can fool a, you know, actual experienced Mac user into thinking it's not a Catalyst app. Right. The scaling thing helps a lot, but there are other sort of telltale signs. And especially if you're bringing an app from the iPad or, or the iPhone, it's very easy to tell that it's not a native Mac app because no one would ever make a Mac app like that because that's not how Mac apps work. Um, so 
the Mac as a platform is in a difficult situation. Part of that situation is just, you know, Apple in terms of like, well, how important is the Mac to any one person? But part of it is Apple's own doing and that they don't have a clear message on what should I be doing instead of Electron. So Electron really starts to feel like a a safe, wise, uh, and reasonable choice until Apple gets his crap together. Yeah, it's, a, it's just, it's such a crummy, it's such a crummy state of the Mac, right? And to bring this briefly back to 1Password, I'm still not convinced that Catalyst wouldn't have been an acceptable answer. So it would be straight UI kit on iOS and, and, and iPad, and then, you know, 90% UI kit wherever possible on, on Mac OS, and then dropping back to AppKit or something like that if necessary. I mean, if the backend really and truly is rust, and if it really and truly does 90% of the heavy lifting, then I got to imagine 90% of 10% is still not too much code. You know what I mean? Like it shouldn't have been that thick a shim over over their rust back end but not be that as it may again i can arm, armchair quarterback all the time i mean honestly i think they should have used AppKit. they already knew how to use it they already had a giant existing app like AppKit is the right answer here i know it doesn't feel good from an engineering standpoint but that is the right answer right now i mean they they would have had to throw away the existing AppKit app but getting back to the core thing being in rust like granted you're gonna need to put something new on top of it because we all know despite everyone's attempts to be disciplined your back end is tied to your front end in ways that are difficult. So I totally understand that you've got to throw away your existing AppKit app, probably all of it, right? Mm. You've got a new core, right? But on top of that new core, how thick would the layer of AppKit, UIKit, or SwiftUI have to be? They tried to do SwiftUI, didn't work out for whatever reasons, if they had tried to do an AppKit layer on top. Certainly, you know, more work than Electron because Electron is shared across all the platforms and you just do it once, great. But how complicated would that be? I don't, I'm not, as a, I've used 1Password, last, last 1Password version I had was 3, I think. I think I just deleted it actually a couple of months ago because I realized I hadn't launched it in a while or maybe it had the, the circle with a line through it uh, <laughs> saying it doesn't run this OS anymore. <laughs> but I don't know how complicated 1Password is. How much UI does 1Password have? But pick any API and it's plausible that would have been a similar amount of work to use AppKit, Catalyst, or Swift UI on top of that core. All of those options are obviously way more work than doing zero work and just using Electron everywhere, right? So again, I can kind of understand why the company went with what they went with. But I also uh, mostly agree with Marco that if you had done it with AppKit, that's a, in terms of customer experience, currently that's a no compromise solution. Like I was trying to think of, is there anything you can't do in AppKit? I think maybe with some of the stuff they're adding to Swift UI, some things are actually a little bit more difficult than AppKit, like the, some of the Swift UI views would be difficult to synthesize in AppKit. But in general, I don't think there's anything you literally can't do in AppKit. So from a customer's perspective, they don't need to know your core is in Rust. Who cares? Your UI is in AppKit. They don't need to know you rewrote it all, especially if you change it and it looks a little bit different for the version 8 or whatever. Um, and that that's fine. If you did it in Catalyst, I do wonder if we would have, be having this exact same podcast, only instead of us complaining about them going to Electron, we'd be complaining that they went to Catalyst. <laughs> because <laughs> Catalyst apps also have their own kind of, especially if your goal is to share that code with iPad and the iPhone, you'd be like, oh, why don't the menu, why is these menu items weird? Why don't the keyboard shortcuts work? Like there's tons of reasons to complain about Catalyst because it's also young, right? 
and then Swift UI, like, you know, they, they would still be writing it because there's like three things they needed to do that it doesn't currently do. And good luck trying to wedge that in. Right. And Swift UI is buggy, too. Like, it, like it's not. <laughs> yeah. If you if you look at the way Swift UI does, like even like certain transitions, like navigation controller transitions, um, certain animations, certain like Swift UI actually it does a lot of things in different ways than the native UI frameworks on its own platform does them. Like if you if you write certain things in UIKit or mm-hmm. AppKit versus Swift UI, they actually sometimes behave in small different ways. And so like this is why I, I think the the idea of cross platform design and, and having like having a shared framework between very different kinds of platforms. How long has our industry been trying to do this? And how has when has it ever worked with the sole exception of the web browser? The web browser is the greatest cross-platform, cross-UI, you know, everything. But once you get into apps, native apps, the platforms are so different in big and small ways. You know, a few big ways and a thousand small ways that I don't think it's even possible to expect any cross-platform toolkit to ever really make great UI experiences. I think whatever you write for a phone or for a watch or for the Mac, or for the PC, or for the web browser. Those are all very different targets, and they all have different UI conventions, different expected behaviors by users, entirely different environments and needs and priorities. And so you're right, Catalyst apps do suck, and the reason they suck is not because they're built on web technologies. It's not because, like, they don't have all of the same implementation details, or almost any of the same implementation details as something like Electron. They suck because they're running iPad code on the Mac and it doesn't feel right and it doesn't behave right in lots of little tiny ways. And that's that's native code. That's like that's it's running it's not being like interpreted or emulated. That's native code running in in what is kind of a native framework, but it's you know kind of for the wrong platform. But like I, I don't think this dream of having cross-platform, you know, write we're we're just gonna write one app and it's gonna be the same and it's gonna be great everywhere. I don't think that's ever achievable because platforms aren't the same. And to be great on a platform requires it to adopt to all the platform's little behaviors and priorities and things, which are all going to be different. So that's why I think a a company like 1Password, they have the resources, they have the engineering, they have the staff. They got to where they are today in part because they made native apps on multiple platforms that were good. And the idea of transitioning that to one shared app no matter what framework they're using is not going to be good it's not going to be as good as what they had before it's it's not going to feel right it's everything's going to feel like a web view because that's that's what it is but even if they wrote it all native code if they if they still had like the exact same ui behavior and layout and everything across all platforms it would also still feel and work poorly different app different platforms are different for reasons and they're always going to be. And so if you're going to have an app on multiple platforms and you care a lot about the experience being good, I think you have to write it natively on each platform. You know, that's another argument. What you just said is kind of another argument for Electron, uh, unfortunately, because of all the, you know, the things you listed, like it feeling native or whatever, the web, as you noted, is a sort of common interface across all platforms that it has its own 
conventions in language, blue underline words, click on and you take you places as an address bar, back and forward, reload. Like there's this whole other miniature world of UI conventions that exist within the web. And obviously it's not as consistent as a single OS, what people are familiar with. And the second thing the web has going for it is good web browser engines essentially embed native controls like the text fields when you hit control uh, you know hit control a in a text field which is like an emacs key binding that works because the ns text field from next was written by a bunch of emacs users so control a <laughs> works in text fields on the mac os 10 as long as you're using a coco api right i'm pre- does that work in in web browsers i'm pretty sure it does i casey you need to go test this for me beginning of line yep, it does it does yeah. yep. right um, so, th- you know, same thing with buttons. They may not look like native buttons, but very often, you know, they were historically native buttons now because of CSS stuff. They may be a little bit weird or whatever. Pop-up menus, scrolling regions, text editing regions. Most web browser engines, most good ones these days, try to use native controls within them, right? Catalyst uses, quote-unquote, native UI controls, which do not behave like Mac controls. They behave like iPad and iPhone controls. And the iPad and iPhone, until recently, didn't even have a cursor, right? And so it's a totally different uh, interface paradigm. And, and, you know, an Electron app, the two things that I was going for is, one, it might actually feel more native. And two, the parts that don't feel native feel like web, which at least is an interface that people look at and say, oh, I kind of, I, you know, they, they, they code switch, they the mode switch, whatever. They're like, oh, this is like a web UI. Like, I feel like I do that when I use Slack. Like, when I'm using Slack, it's not like I feel like I'm using a, a web browser, but I, like, I'm in web app mode. Like, and I think a lot of Mac users, are, we've been used to that since we have web browsers, because basically, you know, maybe 50% of the windows on our computer are web windows right where the whole world inside those windows is the web page language right and then the mac stuff is outside of it and so when i go to slack i'm into the web mode if a catalyst app lands on here and it doesn't respond to any of my keyboard commands or focus commands in the text fields and i can't tab from text fields and the and the date picker is some weird wheel of fortune thing that i don't even understand that's not web that's not mac and it feels worse like it just i don't i don't want that at all right so Again, Electron is not giving you the best experience. I agree with Marco. You want the best experience, you write it in AppKit. And, you know, or hell, AppKit with Swift UI inflected, which I think is also, I feel like that's the second choice. If we had to rank these, AppKit will feel the most native because it is the most native. But of course, everyone thinks that API is, is dead or dying. AppKit with Swift UI views, I think, is the best technical solution because every place you can't use Swift UI, just use AppKit, you're fine. But the places where you can get Swift UI, it, I can tell you, it integrates really well with AppKit. And the places where you get benefit from it, big win. As, as you all know, use it in the places where it's a big win. It saves you tons of time. And by the way, those use happen to be reusable, reusable if you want to use them elsewhere, um, right? And then I would say a distant third is Catalyst. This is all based on the fact that Apple hasn't really given any guidance about which one of these three is dying, <laughs> which one of these three is going <laughs> to lose. Like, what is the ranking? Which one is going to get the boot? Which one is going to die from slow neglect? Which one is going to win? We don't know. But just on the technical merits... AppKit with Swift UI, number one, uh, you know, Swift UI alone did not finish. Uh, <laughs> Catalyst, uh, third place. Uh, and, and in that soup, though, I feel like Electron, the choice of Electron, which is make the, uh, the, the user experience worse for users and get everyone to complain, but potentially 
get everyone over the hump and eventually people just stop complaining. And if you actually, if this actually does the work the way you say, where, oh, now we can do features more quickly, well, then prove it by rolling out features more quickly and maybe people start to get happy. Or maybe they still grumble uh, and then you buy yourself a year or two where you can have your, you know, your, your mea culpa post and say, we heard you <laughs> and now that it's clear that we shouldn't be using Electron on the Mac, it's also become more clear that insert framework here is the future of APIs on the Mac, and so we're we've rewritten the the Mac client using that API. Before we go, I I hear what you guys are saying, and I and I agree with you, but I don't know. I feel like my my gut tells me, having never used it, that Catalyst is a more viable solution here than than I think, especially John, you're giving it credit for, and I am. But quite possibly wrong there. But my my call to action for the listeners is if you have an app that, that you're fairly confident is Catalyst that you use or write that you think is a really and truly good platform citizen, let me know on Twitter. I'd be curious to hear what that is because I don't know what the what the, the, the plate of Catalyst apps is. Like I know the ones that we all hate on the Mac that Apple ships like Home, which honestly is garbage on iOS too, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, home is uh, home. terrible everywhere. Bad example. Right. It, yeah, exactly. But that's exactly my point. Like Home, and, and, I, and I'm sure there's a couple others that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. Yeah. But Well, Messages is probably the most used Catalyst app if I had to guess. That's true. And that still has a couple of quirks in Big Sur, but for the most part, I think it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, if there's a Catalyst app that that you use or write that you genuinely believe is really and truly awesome, I'd be curious to hear about that on Twitter. So please, uh, please let me know. Yeah, Catalyst, Catalyst has, like, there's no reason Catalyst can't be eventually made to be as good as AppKit with all the features. It's just not there yet because it's only been a few years since it's been on the Mac platform and, like, stuff doesn't work yet. Drag and drop or the cursor doesn't work right the right way or the menu bar stuff's not the same. Like, all of these, it, Swift UI is the youngest, obviously, and it's got the farthest to go, but there's nothing technically stopping either Catalyst or Swift UI from eventually being the API on the Mac platform. It's just neither one of them is right now, right? And so we're faced with the reality, uh, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I gave SwiftUI, I did not finish because I just feel like it's it's the, too young and too ready, but and I rank Catalyst below AppKit with SwiftUI mixed in. Like, that's one of the, one of the beauty, I mean, one of the beauties of, of SwiftUI is it's really easy to, to mix in with AppKit. You can also mix in SwiftUI, obviously, in a Catalyst app, and you can mix AppKit in with the Catalyst app too, but I feel like three APIs is too many. <laughs> Like <laughs> yeah. In, in, yeah. A, in a single app. So if you have to mix them, App, AppKit with Swift UI is make just makes so much sense because you you can just smell when this is going to be a place where Swift UI is going to be awesome. And where it's not, you're an AppKit and you can literally do anything and you're fine, right? But Catalyst, it's a much more difficult balancing act. So I feel like we just have to wait to see how this all shakes out. Right now, Catalyst is in the lead, technically, because it has more features and you can make a more convincing, more complicated Mac app with Catalyst than you can with Swift UI. But AppKit, you know, obviously can do everything and is, you know, hugely mature and has good performance. And eventually Microsoft and Adobe did rewrite their crap <laughs> using this API. Uh, so yeah, it's probably going to be around for, the, for a while. So that's why I just keep looking at Swift UI and Catalyst and wondering, wondering how that's going to shake out. But in the meantime, like, again, I don't use 1Password. Uh, you know, I, I, I bought it a couple times, decided it wasn't for me. Uh, I just used iCloud Keychain for a variety of reasons, and I'm glad that iCloud Keychain is getting better. But I will say that every day I use Slack and other Electron apps that I consider good Electron apps. And I have to say, a good Electron app 
doesn't bother me too much, but it should definitely bother Apple. And, and I'll say, like, I'm, I'm still using 1Password even throughout all this because iCloud Keychain would be the only would be the obvious thing I, that I would you know go to instead. But I don't trust Apple yet to have the functionality I need consistently in that product yet. Right now, I use iCloud Keychain as like a convenience. Like if if I fill in a password on a web form from one password and Apple offers to save it, I say yes. And the next time I go to that site, it might fill it in. Sometimes. It might not. <laughs> it also seems broken on my phone forever for some reason. Like I iCloud Keychain just never it never works properly on my phone. Works great on all my other devices except my phone. It's because it's too small. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but my battery life is getting bad fast. It's because it knows you have it knows you have one password installed and it's angry. <laughs> yeah, right. It's been dicked. Yeah, so like like I, I don't like iCloud Keychain yet. I, I think it, it might eventually get good, but it's not it's not good enough and stable enough and, and consistent enough for me yet. It still doesn't have a lot of features I like with one password. Um, and of course, there is the cross-platform thing that you know is going to be always going to be kind of an afterthought for Apple if it if it exists at all. So, I I, I want to keep using this product, and I probably will keep using this product. I'm just going to have more paper cuts now. Um, yeah, th- and that's that's unfortunate. And and I I hope they can find a way not not to do that, uh, or at least to to reduce those or eliminate those paper cuts. But I think some degree of that is inevitable with all Electron apps. And and if not Electron, as I was saying a minute ago, with all cross-platform apps, like if, if you don't have native UIs that were really written like with the platform they're running on in mind, with a significant amount of native code on each platform, I don't think you can make great experiences. I think you can make okay, you can make acceptable experiences. It's hard to make great experiences. You know, the, the most common Electron app I use is Slack. I use it all day, every day. And it's not a great experience. It's fine, but it's not. It's not great. Yep. And and Slack, I feel like, is even more excusable as an electronic app because it has such a much larger amount of UI. Like there, there's so much UI in Slack. It, you know, the, so many different kinds of screens, so many different modes the UI can be in, so many different you know levels and threads, and it's like there's so much UI in Slack. That is more excusable to me to be an electronic app, and it's a server side app. Like the tons, everything you do talks to a server. So it being web based technology is like okay, I can see that. Right. Yes. But uh, but one password, I, I think the the conception of it that I have is that the the amount of UI in this app is significantly smaller than Slack. Uh, now that being said, in all the different directions they're going as their focus on you know business enterprise kind of features. Maybe that's all changing for a bunch of stuff I'll never use. And that's why it's extra frustrating. Would you like to save your screenshots in 1Password? <laughs> 1Password can now back up your entire computer. <laughs> I just got that prompt today. I'm like, what From Dropbox, is yeah. dialogue? Yeah. Because I, I was on some, like one of the kids' accounts on a computer that they don't use. Normally, I'm like, would I like to save my screen? I'm like, well, oh, this is a Dropbox dialogue? What the heck? I've long since like dismissed it and told Dropbox to shut up on all my computers. Yeah. Please, 1Password, do not offer to save all our screenshots. Dropbox needs your root password to enable certain features. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Let's let's hope 1Password doesn't go the way of Dropbox. But unfortunately, I, I look just looking at you know the direction they're going as a company, for, you know, focusing a lot on the business market and everything, I, I think it's it's going to be an uphill battle to not go that direction and and so i hope they don't but 
Yeah. Anyway. But as a as a final note, I mean, w- at least Marco and I, we spent a lot of this time talking about 1Password because it's a, a product and company we love so darn much. And and in the defense of 1Password, you know, this is the first public beta of, of 1Password 8. And three 1Password employees have been hanging out in the chat, including both founders, this entire, or certainly this entire segment, if not the entire episode. So, you know, they obviously care. And, and I don't think... I, I don't get the feeling that they're just in here trying to do some sort of damage control. I really genuinely believe that they care, and that's why we care. And and I hope that continues to be the case because I agree that I fear that that one password's heading for a Dropbox fall into an into irrelevance. And, and I really hope that that's not the case. I wouldn't even say irrelevance. I would just say just very different priorities than what than what all the consumers who started using it really want out of it. And that's true. That's fair. That's fair. Thanks to our sponsors this week, one password. <laughs> no, actually, it was Linode, Mac Weldon, and Squarespace. And thanks to our members who support us directly, you can join atp.fm slash join. We will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do Search Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss M-A-R-C-O A-R-M E-N-T Marco Arment C U S A Syracuse It's accidental So my bike was stolen a few days ago. <laughs> well, it's all coming up Millhouse for you this week, huh? What, Good thing you had an air tag on it though. Right? So right? <laughs> oh wow. Oh wait, is this real? Oh, now I'm really excited. So this this was incredible. So so Tiff was showing at an art show here in town, which is it was great. It was a big deal. It was a huge. I'm very proud of how it went for her. She was great and stuff went well. It was great. Anyway, Tiff was doing this art show. I was sitting at the booth with her for for the second half of the, of uh, this day and so and I was riding my bike back and forth occasionally back to the house to like, you know, let let hops out or you know, do other, you know, pick up stuff whatever. I was parking my bike 15 feet from where I was sitting. It was in eye shot. Did we figure out if that's a word? Is eye shot a word? <laughs> this is a new one. This is not like heartened. I guess within view. I <laughs> so it was it was within within eye shot. <laughs> and and I I don't usually lock my lock my bike in town because it's a beach town that you you can't bring bikes on the ferry. So there's nowhere for a bike to really go. And so bikes don't usually get stolen for profit. You know, like they, they get stolen usually by drunk idiots who are about to miss the last ferry of the night. And so they, they rush to grab whatever bike they can find. They ride to the ferry and they dump it somewhere near the ferry. And so then the next morning, everyone goes in the town Facebook group and posts like, hey, there's this bike in front of my house. Whose is this? And then like <laughs> someone else would be like, oh, I know that's Bob's bike. You know, because everyone knows it's a small town. <laughs> <laughs> so so these are this is like the the environment that we operate in here so normally i don't even lock my bike when, if i'm just like going out to you know a grocery store or something because it's there's not a real 
theft problem for like in the way that you would usually think of one. So I thought AirTags would be perfect for this because usually, again, the problem is not professional bike thieves coming up with an angle grinder <laughs> and cutting your U-lock to, to you know, steal your bike for you know, profit. All you need to know is, okay, my bike is not where I left it. It's probably somewhere stupid. Where is it? <laughs> That's all you need to know. So I thought AirTags were great. So when I got my first AirTags earlier in the summer, um, I put one in discrete locations on many common objects, including my bike, and figuring that, you know, hey, this this could be good for a passive environment like this. And also, the lack of like true GPS or cellular in them wasn't a big problem because I don't think there's anywhere on this entire island that an object is likely to be more than 20 feet from an iPhone for very long. Uh, it's we have like very tightly packed houses and tons of people walking around all the time. So, you know, the iPhone location basis of them is also going to be, I think, pretty accurate. So anyway, so at this art fair with Tiff, my bike is parked 15 feet away within eye shot. And I within an hour and a half period, like between 330 and five on this day, we finish up the art fair, Tiff's packing up. I go to get my bike. I'm like, where's my, where's my bike? Did, I parked it here, right? I'm looking around like, where is it? And this was in a bike rack full of other bikes. Like, I'm like, where where did my bike go? I said, somebody steal my bike in front of me? <laughs> and I didn't notice? <laughs> yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> so at some point, someone in this, you know, art fair, like there's a lot of, you know, foot traffic. Someone at some point walked up to my bike out of the, and just took it out of the rack. <laughs> That's bananas. So I'm like, all right, well, let's see. <laughs> so um, I uh, I looked, opened up the Find My app, Find My Bike. It instantly <laughs> showed a point in the map that was a few blocks away. I'm like, uh, by the ferry. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, but it's like, okay, it's you know, this happened between three thirty and five p.m. Could somebody have really been that bombed at like four o'clock in the afternoon? I mean, it turns challenge out challenge accepted yeah, on Fire Island. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also i'm like this wasn't even the last ferry they they like you know this was like four o'clock the ferries run till like midnight like this like, it's not anyway so i i'm like i walked over I'm like this will be amazing if my bike is actually where this says it is i walk you know towards it on the map and sure enough the air tag had exactly located my bike which was parked in front of a storefront and next to a couple other bikes near the ferry <laughs> i have no idea how this happened like in front of me without me noticing it doesn't even make sense because in the context of this art fair there there was so little like you it was hard to even walk down the sidewalk let alone bike down it like because there's so much traffic it's like walking through times square like the you but on a much smaller scale obviously like i don't know why somebody did this but the fact is my bike was indeed stolen in the stupid way that bikes get stolen here the air tag worked perfectly and it let me find it in 10 seconds after i started looking <laughs> like wait where's my bike it's not here okay find my boom it's a few blocks that way okay walk right to it it's exactly where it says it is so here is my success story with air tags if you happen to have the very strange needs and priorities that i do for bikes here uh they work really well for that mm, keep an eye on your bike though why yeah that might be a good idea <laughs> 